I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch presents Nick Cage versus Cults. I'm trying to. I'm trying to get into my Nicholas Cage. Right? Oh, oh! I didn't even know that's what you were doing. I uh, yeah, no, I get. Aaron, it. hello, Peter Moran. I could listen to a podcast for hours. Your name starts with a P, then an E, then a T. E R M O. I think even Nick Cage hosting a Sesame and a very aggressive version of Sesame Street. <laughs> I do think that Nick, we were talking about it a little in the green room or on text. Like Nick Cage on, he hosted Saturday Night Live, but it was like in the eight, it was like post raising Arizona. I think it was before his full persona and like who he was as a person had really codified in the public image. And I think then you basically just have that time that he. Uh, shows up on Weekend Update with Andy Samberg with Get in the Cage. Pretty, I rewatched that today. You sent it, Peter. Like, he's actually fairly subdued, which is like a point they make about why there's two of them. Like, he's the calm one and Andy Samberg is the psychotic one. <laughs> but, man, watching these movies, like, uh, more specifically the first one that we're going to talk about, like, there's definitely a... <laughs> they they nail the idea that he only uh, works in a whisper or a yell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's it's complicated. It's really it's complicated. It's complicated. We're going to get into it. And this, it. All is spurred, this is all spurred from a co- conversations I've had with people over the years. Usually more casual movie watchers have somehow taken from the Nicolas Cage memes. The, 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 the truth that they've taken from that is that Nicolas Cage is a bad actor. And yeah. I think you and I wanted to not just utterly refute that, but like break apart the idea that Nicolas Cage is a good or a bad actor. He's a highly talented professional who's just on his own fucking wavelength. And if um, those magic pieces can actually be separated from the whole. Yeah. And for a guy who, as a Saturday Night Live joke is, has been in 90 percent of the, of the movies ever. Um, <laughs> we've never covered a Nicolas Cage movie. And we're doing three tonight. So what is this? It's our Spooktober spectacular where we love to watch. We're, we are a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of that month around that theme. And this is our special uh, every year. We've done some sort of supersized or special Halloween episode. That's the one you're listening to uh, sometime in the next week. We'll start our next month. You'll also hear our recap for all the movies that we watched over the course of Spooktober. But we're, we're recording this one in the throes of Spooktober, and it is our our Spooktober special episode. And like all of our supersized ones, we um, we don't want to just do a movie that's special to us. We wanted to think and do something a little bit bigger. And this is actually one that is, is the first time, I think, besides the Evil Dead stuff where we just did the series, which is obviously thematically tied to the movies. <laughs> I think this is the first one that we actually tried to go, hey, instead of just doing kind of a special epi, let's try to tie this into the month's theme. And so we're doing Nicolas Cage versus Cults. He's been in a lot of movies. He's been in three uh, uh, that that are basically with him versus some type of cult. Two of those are, uh, depending on your opinion, degrees of bad. <laughs> um, but I, I still think there's a lot worth talking about. 
But uh, Wicker Man from 2006, which is the PG-13 uh, remake of the movie that probably most people are like, how the fuck did you guys not do the Wicker Man in your cult movie month? We'll get there. Calm down, hypothetical listener. But 2006 is a really interesting time in the Nick Cage career because it's when he starts becoming more known as a meme than as a serious actor. Didn't help that the 2000s uh, or like I, I said this to Peter, I literally think 2000. 2007 is about the nadir of cinema, especially from a studio picture. But even in some cases, the independent section, like that's when we were getting shit like House of Sand and Fog. And we're like, I don't know, I guess it's serious. Uh, A plus compared to everything else. A lot of sad boys um, uh, in that. The boys are sad. The boys were sad. The boys were very sad. They keep stubbing their toe on shit because their house is full of sand and fog. It's also the it's also the era where the big budget studios opted for everything needs to be PG-13. Uh, it's like the worst type of superhero movies that you got. Special effects were almost roundly terrible as they moved away from uh, from any sort of realistic or physical special effects and moved towards almost exclusively the whatever studio or whatever uh, special effects house would bid the lowest. Um, so I think you can make that argument. So Wicker Man really fits in there of like Nicolas Cage not being surrounded by uh, talent or budgets or the type of movies that really he had, you know, kind of done a fantastic job of in the 90s when he's winning Academy Awards and starring in great, uh, you know, uh, critically acclaimed movies and fun action movies. And he's just, he's really like, trying to i think save the wicker man from from being a boring ass movie and he doesn't quite get there but he definitely is like literally it's it i i feel like it's acting peter you know when you put the what is it the electro pads on someone's heart <laughs> you're like yeah you're like stimulating their muscles so they Stimul- just jerk out like, wildly so you don't you don't die i feel like it's him doing that to the movie for an hour and 40 minutes like please we're not gonna lose it like, yes i think wicker man you're 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 right we have to start with wicker man because you're pinpointing an incredibly important part in nicholas cage's trajectory it, it's not just that he had kind of shucked off respectability because leaving Las Vegas was a long time before and Face Off was about a decade before this movie. Yeah. But I mean, he's still doing Scorsese movies in 99. Yes. Yes. He's and 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 for fuck's sake, he just did Pig. So he's always doing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll get to now. He's always doing reputable pictures. But the point is that those are not as easily bifurcated from the body of his work as you can with some actors. Some actors, it's like, yeah, I did this, uh, I did like uh, Tom Cruise. I did this one because I thought I would maybe get Oscar buzz for it. And then I did this one because I really like making big action movies and I like making a lot of money um, that I give to Scientology. With Nicolas Cage, it's really hard to like separate the two because he's incredible in some of the worst movies of all time. And then movies that look terrible, he's fantastic in doing his own thing. And he never seems to betray the quote-unquote crazy Nicolas Cage nouveau shaman uh, when he goes <laughs> and does something something reputable. Like, even movies like Lord, Lord of War, um, he's like or yeah. a family man. He's still making crazy choices. It's just that he's more attuned to the to the the tone of the movie. Um, and in 2006, the important thing to know is in 2006, that is when uh, meme culture 
really started to take off and uh, the the idea of, uh, you know, movies like Vampire's Kiss that no one gave a shit about before, they started yeah. becoming a thing. There was before this, there was, of course, the You're the Man Now dog, uh, you know, thing. But um, now we have YouTube. Now we have uh, GIFs being widely distributed over email chains and shit and like in Reddit posts and in forums that can actually handle GIFs like the Nicolas Cage as a face on the Internet is becoming mm-hmm. a icon. Yeah. So and I, I do think like I think people think that post the 90s, Nicolas Cage was always this kind of joke, but he was really still a critically acclaimed leading man. I actually would make the case, like, again, from a cultural perspective, Wicker Man is actually the the first the first domino in a series that kind of be, makes him a punchline for a little bit. So, because, um, I mean, you look at this, Peter, like, I think most of us would agree that not that his 90s were unimpeachable, but like Nick Cage was a huge, successful movie star making really good movies in the 90s. I think most people would agree with that for the 80s and a different type of movie. But like here's what you have like – this is this is the you know the the few years before it. So you have I'm gonna take it across ninety eight ninety nine, uh, but we go to two thousand. I think the Family Man is an okay movie. Captain Corelli's Mandolin is like a movie that no one really cares about or talks about. Uh, but Wind Talkers was still a big picture. You have Adaptation, which is maybe like his best performance of all time. You have uh, Matchstick Men, which is a I don't know Matchstick Men is like one of my favorite Ridley Scott's movies. Like critically, that no one talks acclaimed. about. No one talks about, but was was like a pretty big crit- critical hit in in two thousand three. But Matchstick Men is, I think, a perfect example of what I was talking about. Where like because Nicolas Cage is a con man in that, he gets yeah. to be both serious, heartfelt Nicolas Cage, but he yeah. also gets to be crazy Nicolas Cage because he's in effect his character is seven characters because he doesn't. Well, really and that's a little he bit is. he gets to do with adaptation and bringing out the dad and yes. like he he. But these are like these are big either either uh, you know National Treasure, not a critical hit, but like a huge hit like a leading man here he is in this this what would become a franchise making like 500 million dollars right and then i think even 2005 like the weatherman is actually like a really dark gore verbinski movie that i really like lord of war i think uh is actually like mildly successful it's definitely not like a joke nicholas cage but then all of a sudden you have two things in 2006 which really started him down this path you have world trade center which is was like kind of a what the fuck are you doing oliver stone movie uh, and then you have the Wicker Man, and then like Peter, it's right after that that like he becomes known as the guy, as the bad. Like after that, it's 2006. Then you have in a row Ghost Rider, next National Treasure, Book of Secrets, Bangkok Dangerous, Knowing. Uh, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, Sorcerer's Apprentice, Season of the Witch, Driving. Like, that's when you start getting – now, I mean, I, I think Bad Lieutenant is, is awesome and I think his, the first kick-ass is okay and he's good enough. <laughs> Bad Lieutenant is actually probably the genesis of critics going, oh, wait, he's on a crazy tear – but he's not yeah. lost to us. He just needs to find the right material. Yeah, you, it's like the next and the Bangkok Dangerous is in the season of the witch. It's like, oh, this guy will, will star in anything. And then I think you get to the next movie we're going to cover, which I didn't know was a cult movie or horror movie. And I saw it for the first time for this, which was Drive Angry in 2011, when it comes in a year that I think is like a nadir for him, where he does four five movies that are all either like completely forgotten or went straight to video or were like just just nowhere in theaters and that's season of the witch drive angry seeking justice trespass and ghostwriter spirit of a vengeance and i think that drive angry is actually 
Like, he's trying to resuscitate the Wicker Man for all it's worth, and he's unable to. I think his performance in Drive Angry is what a lot of critics accused him of, um, that I think is barely true for the most of his career, which is him going, I'm not getting good material. Why am I putting effort into this? I, I don't think he's trying at all in driving he has he has i think i I highlighted like three moments in the movie we'll get to it um that i think he's actually trying and he he puts some effort in and it's It's almost always opposite william fincher this was a project where with some script rewrites this could have been the perfect nicholas cage vehicle weirdly enough i was watching it and i was like weirdly enough this is kind of a prototype of Mandy. No one, it has no one in common on the production side of it, but this is a prototype of Mandy. It's like Nicolas Cage was wronged. Nicolas Cage um, was wronged by, you know, a woman was taken from him. In in one case, his wife, and in another case, his daughter. And uh, he needs to go on a, a road to vengeance where he has abandoned his body entirely. Like he is just becoming a, a like not to borrow a turn of phrase from one of his worst movies, but he's a spirit of vengeance um, mm-hmm. to take down this cult that's led by this messianic figure who has delusions of grandeur uh, and is, is sort of co-opting uh, Christian religion. That's the part that's interesting to me about Drive Angry is it's full of dumb, dumb, uh, like, I wouldn't even say offensive, just like childish jokes. It is one of the most immature movies I've ever seen in my life. It feels like it's a perfect thing for, for Nicolas Cage, but he's so beaten down by this spiral that he's in that he can't even muster to like give full effort. But then yeah. in 2013, he gives one of his also worst perform- performances, which I've only actually seen half of. In the Left Behind movie. Oh, yeah. But that but that's 2014. But yeah, in 2014, he has Left Behind. And right before that, in 2013, he had yeah. Joe. Which was his like, oh, that's right, Nicholas. Like, from a cultural perspective or however culturally impacted Joe was, his, oh, right, that's right. Nicholas Cage can be a subtle good actor when he wants to. And I think talking about Nicholas Cage's career, like he's Ben Affleck or Keanu Reeves or any of those guys, like there's comebacks, um, is a pointless endeavor. Because there's there's no there's no arc, there's no narrative, there's no he fired his agent and then all of a sudden he found someone who would give him good parts. The point is that he there, there is a little bit of didn't he get a bunch of tax trouble and had to, like yeah. I remember he had yes. to take some movies. Yeah, but that's been going on throughout for the past 10 or so years um actually let's park there really quickly um yes uh he has a business that was some combination there was a suit and counter suit uh his business manager said nicholas cage spent his money frivolously he built himself a pyramid bought a uh what is it a a, A a flotilla of yachts Um, we also hold on he also bought a t-rex skull for 20 million dollars which apparently he was not allowed to do and he he's a good he seems like a good guy from what I read and again I don't know how much of this is is true but like he bought one that he, he that he had to um that he's like oh yeah who, I don't know who sold you that but like that person can't sell that T Rex skull to you and Nicholas Cage was very like nice and was like oh shit sorry and he gave it back but P S that's when you own something that you bought uh somehow illicitly. Or without legal sanction, they don't give you the money back for it. You, you just, just lose you twenty million dollars. Yeah. yeah, who knows? It could have been. A, you, you remember a few years ago, Hobby Lobby got in trouble for um, buying stone tablets through ISIS. Oh yeah, um, I'm wondering if it was a similar situation. It was just like some 
like awful organization. You think ISIS was, was involved? I think ISIS was involved. I think ISIS. I don't know. The, I, I, ISIS game. is mainly involved with the type of organizations that also try to deny people birth control. <laughs> I think Nicholas. I think Nicholas Cage would pay for people's birth control out of the goodness of his heart. Yeah, he seems like a good guy. But yeah, so there's there's tax problems and there's debt problems. So he's had to sell off many many of his assets at a loss. Where's my pyramid? But yeah, so he had to sell off. He had to sell ah! off a lot of stuff. I imagine he didn't get to sell the pyramid because I think it was made for him. But he had like an <laughs> island in uh, the Caribbean. He I mean, he was huge. I mean, to understand, he basically had a twenty year run of like being one of a, a movie star that could open movies, right? Like yeah. Snake Eyes is doing ninety million at the box office just yeah. on Nicolas Cage's face. And and to also note, like. While we make fun of him for the dinosaur skull thing and the pyramid skull thing, like, it is a genuine way for you to diversify where you keep your money to buy houses and have them accrue value. Like, that is considered an investment. It also rules. It, it, it seems like a really – like, I'm a rich guy. I'm going to build a pyramid and buy a dinosaur skull. Yes. Like, good for you, Nicolas Cage. I'm sorry it didn't work out. But, like, you know, as opposed to, like, I'm going to open a sweatshop or something. Like, Yes. Some, some um, whatever do. weird shit Johnny Depp was doing where he, like, had yeah. a village in France just do chocolat uh, role play. Um, yeah. We did not have time for that. Um, no. But – uh, yeah, but he had tax problems. He had uh, personal debt problems because a business manager mishandled his money or he mishandled his money. I think both. Uh, <laughs> but he, unlike, unlike say, Wesley Snipes, who, like, tried, it sounds like tried to evade his duty to pay his taxes. Yeah. Um, it sounds like Nicolas Cage was like, all right, I got to do that. <laughs> and then when the, because when the, the IRS, when they're, when you owe the IRS a lot of money, the first thing they do is they come to your door and they say, you owe us a lot of money. And you can say, all right, well, let's work something out. Let me, you know, talk yeah. to my accountant and my lawyer and we'll work something out and we'll get you on a payment plan to pay back your taxes. Like the IRS does not want to send Nicholas Cage to jail. They want their money back. Yeah. Um, I obviously am not uh, either of their accountants, so I don't know the specifics of that, but that sounds You're like not that's either why of their accountants? <laughs> Man, you have, you have misled me. You told me, <laughs> at least implied, you were both of their accountants. So I, I, to, I, learn, I, to learn right here and now that you're neither Wesley Snipes or... Or Nicholas Cage's accountant is pretty shocking. I have no. Are you anyone's accountant? I don't have a CPA. <laughs> okay. And I have taken, I think, three accounting classes in my life. Um, that I that might remember. be three more than Nicholas Cage's accountant. <laughs> I, think, yeah, I think you're getting what I'm getting at, which is that I would have subtle recommendations to people like Wesley Snipes and uh, and Nicholas Cage, such as um, pay your pay your taxes. Pay your taxes, pay your taxes. Um, Maybe diversify into things that have resale value, unlike, uh, you know, dinosaur bones. Um, maybe don't make illicit deals like that. Uh, but the the point of that is that he, like, owned it. And then is that is part of the reason he does so many movies. There's You can't say Nicolas Cage, like, you know, he clearly wants to get an Oscar. So for the next six years, he only does quiet dramas. Nicolas Cage does yeah. not fucking play like that. He, he is going to do he's going to do three straight to video shitty movies that no one's going to want to watch right after pig. And then he's going to come back and do another Mandy or color out of space. Yeah. And then we're going to be like, wow, thanks for coming back. Nick cage. And he's going to be like, yeah, I still owe the government a lot of money. <laughs> Where's my dinosaur bone? And he's gonna Where's the bone? <laughs> I got a good, I got a good lead on some dinosaur bones. This one's um, a stegosaurus. I, <laughs> I find them quite powerful. Have you seen those spikes? 
Um, I do. Uh, Spikes on the top I- of his body. <laughs> Plates. Spikes. It's going to be a nine hour episode if we keep doing this. <laughs> We can do it all night, uh, and we will. Uh, I do think that the 2013-2014 divide, I think, is is where he exists today. I think you're right. Like, the fact that he – I think he stopped trying to – some of this is obviously our interpretation of it, not like a conscious decision that Nick Cage meant. But I think culturally he was embraced as this, like, elder statesman who gets to do whatever he wants. And I think, like, the joke of Nicolas Cage appearing in bad movies kind of went away. And it was like, yeah, Nicolas Cage is going to do some movies for money. It's fine. He's earned it. And then people get excited when he is in a movie that matches his uh, energy level or acting ability. And that's been stuff like Pig. It's been stuff like uh, Mom and Dad. And then Mandy, I think, is probably the best example of that um, in in this like last 10 years of his career. So I, I do think in a weird way that we're kind of – uh, at least from the post, like post huge movie star, post critical acclaim, Academy Award winning Nicolas Cage, we're covering like the three stages of his career over the last fifteen years, which is tr- uh, not getting the right material and desperately trying to save it, act his way out of a shitty script and a bad directing. To realize that that is, you know, and then five years later to kind of realize that that doesn't work and just be a low energy jeb. Uh, for paychecks and then existing comfortably in this world where he still wants to get paid. He's still going to do those things, but he's not a Bruce Willis. Like he's not like the light hasn't gone out of his eyes. And when he gets <laughs> Bruce good material, good contrast. Yeah. I mean, when he gets he's they're both appearing in straight to video, but there's not an example of like Bruce Willis still got it. And we get a we get a Nick Cage still has it every couple years, if not more frequently at this point. So like honestly, almost every year, like yeah, Colorado Space, Mandy. Like pig. pig, even Willy's Wonderland. I haven't seen it yet, but people seem to really like it. Now he's going to be in a Scion Soto movie because he specifically sought out Scion Soto. He was in Spider-Man. Well, isn't he, he's Spider-Man. that Prisoners of the Ghost Land, which I haven't seen. Isn't he in that? Something yeah, that's like the that. Scion Soto movie. Yeah, uh, Mom and Dad <laughs> was the year before Mandy. Like. Have you seen Mom and Dad? Mom and Dad is so good. Mom and Dad is so fun. Mom and Dad and he's so doing fun. fun voice roles too. Like he's really good as Spider-Man Noir and Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah. Um, and he's really good as Superman in Teen Titans Go to the Movies, which is – if you remember from our best of I think 2018, I was that was an honorable mention for me. Like this movie is so much fucking fun and his parts in it are really good. Like it's like, oh, yeah, it's Nicolas Cage. Like he – he he is he has reached that point of like an elder statesman who – if he shows up at all, you're kind of excited to see him. And when he really shows up to play, you like stand up and cheer because you know you're going to have a lot of fun or see something special. Yeah, a- absolutely. Absolutely. Um, do you think it's time we start talking about uh, Wicker Man? Let's get into it. We got a lot of movies. Wicker Let's Man, talk about Man. Neil LaBoots. Um, uh, I Hate Women horror movie. As yeah. Opposed to his I Hate Women dramas that came out before. Uh, the Wicker Man. In The Wicker Man, a.k.a. In the Company of Women. <laughs> <laughs> the Bees! Uh, Most fascinating yeah, fact about that movie, right off the bat, the scene that I think many people have not seen this movie, but what they have seen is the ending, uh, mm. or a highlight reel of Nicolas Cage pump- punching women. In a bear costume. In a bear costume, uh, and then riding off on a bike. <laughs> The important thing here to note is, one, the B scene is not in the PG-13 cut of this movie. Not in the theatrical cut. No not one the was aware cut. of it. Two, 
if you uh, want to watch this movie because you want to see uh, some Nicolas Cage do the bees scene a lot, or you want to see the Nicolas Cage <laughs> acting like a psychopath and doing incredibly fake punch outs uh, on women on an island who seem to want and one and one to, one to two drop kicks, <laughs> one to two drop kicks, which I think uh, oh that's something also to note here. Aaron and I this is the first movie Aaron and I have ever watched for the show together. together. We did it over Zoom. <laughs> Yeah, five and a half years. We've never even when we've been together and have watched movies, which we have done. We've never thought to watch a movie for the show. Weirdly, the two things that we've never done together, like that you would think that people who did a movie podcast would do is record in the same room. We've still never done that. You've done that with multiple guests (laughs) that have appeared on the show. Oh, yeah. We have never done that together. And we uh, yeah, this is our first movie that we've ever watched together, which as even though there was a lot of yawning in the last half hour of this movie between Peter and myself, we had a very big thank God we did because at least we had an enjoyable 100 minutes. <laughs> we got to fuck around when it got boring. Uh, if I had the chance to – if I ended up watching that for 105 minutes in the throes of Spooktober – in my basement by myself, I probably would have just fallen asleep. Like, it is a – is he just a boring, boring movie? Yeah, that's the, that is – you're, you're, you're bringing back to my second point, which is that this is not a movie that's worth watching except for the YouTube highlight reels. Um, Nick Cage putting on a bear costume and deciding he's going to take it to the cult by punching women off their bike and then stealing the bike, drop kicking women uh, into a wall of bottles or whatever, uh, Nicolas Cage going, not the bees, um, which we're going to talk about all of that. Um, that is the only enjoyable parts of the movie. It has a incredibly milk toast. Uh, bland aesthetic that uh is is while not digitally drained of all colors it's it's digitally drained of all colors except for yellow the original movie has this great like misty somewhat otherworldly british isle feel to it where it's just you know it feels like an island town they have all those like cool house designs close to the beach and you know especially even more fun like looking back 40 years when i probably saw it for the first time because it it has that um weird like um ethereal time like time warp quality where everything like you know the cars are old and the streets are musty and everything else and like if that's the aesthetic of the first one which is great for a folk horror movie this one is like a shitty boy scout camp in idaho that like has no scenery but they were able to rent the field yeah yeah i mean i think you're you're hinting at what um is the performance problem too which is uh, it's not just the aesthetic it's also the fact that he arrives on the island um oh Joe, what a journey um but if we you know no, it's a shame it's a shame i have to skip all that but he arrives on the island <laughs> and all of the uh all of the people that live there it's like they're doing a like Ren Fair performance. Yeah. Uh, the only person that seems comfortable and actually enjoying themselves on the island is Ellen Burstyn. And she's like the queen of the island. She's like the queen bee, so to speak, because yeah. uh, the cult. And she doesn't burst in until like an hour, 30 minutes. <laughs> burst in earlier. Ellen. Stop. Specifically, like she's the only one in the movie who seems like comfortable on the island and like she's actually settled in some into some sort of almost like 1960s 
like feminist Bay Area style, like hippie commune. Like she seems to be like tapping into something there, some energy there that Neela Butte is not capturing on the film. And none of the other performances are. Everyone else, instead of, you know, in the original Wicker Man, the fun thing is that the island is gorgeous. It is the same quality yeah. as Midsommar. The, yeah. the, the area is gorgeous and you, you feel like the people are actually happy to be there and it's like actually a functional society except for the traumatic annual event. Yeah. It's still an odd society, right? It's a very, like, sex-filled society. I mean, they have, like, the beanpole dance. But, yeah, it is – it's it's not like they're, – they're, they're odd towards the police detective in that movie. They're not antagonistic towards him, which I think is – they most do light pranks to him, and he's yeah. and he's just baffled in a very funny British way. Uh, Nicholas Cage is immediately like, "You're all liars!" Oh my god! Like so, really quick. The plot of this movie compared to the original Wicker Man is that so he's just a he's he's a highway cop. He's a traffic <laughs> cop who like accidentally gets this mom and this daughter with pigtails killed in a fiery semi crash, and then he goes and talks. I think to it's a full detective. crash here. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a. God damn it. <laughs> oh, it's, I mean, yeah, it's 100% a crash. I'm sorry. Um, um, but he, um, I'm going to start crashing. He then, he then like, takes a, he takes a traffic cop break, and then, like, there is some lady who comes and yells at him about, like, are you, are you on antidepressants? How dare you? Come back to work. And he gets a call, he gets a, a tape or cassette or something from his ex wife who lives on the Summer Isle and saying, hey, my, I had a daughter, and by the way, and here's a picture of her, which it, it, it's the girl that was killed in the station wagon accident, except he doesn't put that together until an hour in. And again, so he goes through no authority on this island. He's from California. He goes to this Washington State Island, Summer Isle, to investigate. He is, again, he's a traffic cop. He has no authority. He walks in. I made a joke to you, Peter, that he's probably going to walk in and just say, I'm the cop who took this kid. That's exactly what he does. He's the worst fucking cop of all time. The obvious clues that are obvious to the audience, he doesn't figure out until well into the movie. Everyone is weirdly antagonistic and he just keeps shouting about how, how could you do this to a little girl? And it's like, uh, it's like, dude, you have like, you need to have chill. You need to figure out what is going on. He just like barges into a school and he yells at the kids for lying about the kid that's missing and the end it kind of you know then he you know again he there's a bear costume the island he makes its money through bees and he's deadly allergic to bees a bunch of dumb shit that wasn't in the original and by the end he finds out that uh he gets revealed again obviously that the daughter's supposed to be his and then but by the end it ends a little bit like the original wicker man where they, he finds his daughter she's alive and safe and she was the sacrifice to bring uh he was always going to be the sacrifice that they lured to the island and then played tricks on him for for an hour and 40 minutes a lot of like tricks that make no goddamn sense like uh in in relation to where it ended up but it is like it is contrasting to like the original Wicker Man. Like the original Wicker Man, like he's hired to find someone there. He is he's an he's an investigator. He's looking through stuff. He is doing normal investigator stuff. This lunatic traffic cop who's the worst detective of all time, going and just yell demanding people tell them to admit to a crime, is like it's not interesting. It's not played for like, oh, this is the portrait of a lunatic who is, you know. <laughs> was wandered into this and then like he 
he literally i mean this is the part i kind of want to stick on like you just had this thing about like neil, i want to talk about neil laboot so neil laboot create had a lot of critical things as a playwright he wrote uh the play and then directed the movie in the company of the men which are in the company of men uh with aaron eckhart about two men on a business trip who basically decide wouldn't it be fun to take the power the man power back and fuck with this um i believe she's uh deaf deaf woman and pretend they both were in love with her and then leave her in the way that they've been left in the past right and at the end of the movie i spoilers for in the company man <laughs> i guess you find out that aaron eckert's character has been manipulating the other guy to do it that he actually is of happily married with a wife and kids and I th- I think what I thought at the time that I saw it, Peter was and and really liked it when it was on all those lists in the '90s when I was becoming a person who wanted to find the most critically acclaimed movies was that it was this idea that toxic masculinity is toxic to men and women. That here is this this quote unquote alpha male who is just a fucking asshole, right? Like he was manipulating. Uh, the the woman involved, he was manipulating the other guy involved, and he was using this idea of what it means to be an alpha male to to make, uh, I guess, to use probably the parlance of the film, a beta male uh, be, a, be a dickhead too or whatever else. And I think a lot of people thought that was very insightful at the time. I know I did too. However, I, I, I had bigger problems with your friends and neighbors, which I think is a little more of aren't wives – don't wives suck? Um, and if I remember it correctly, and I do think that part of the charm of those movies, both were critically acclaimed, was this idea of the dialogue because it's too it's it's always people who are emotionally distant seemed very specific and and inhuman. And, and that was the point, right? Like Aaron Eckhart doesn't talk like people that you know. He doesn't know how to relate to humans because he's almost like this monster in human clothing. And your friends and neighbors in that movie, like the relationship, there's no emotional punch because they are almost play acting their way through successful relationships. Having seen The Wicker Man now, I am reassessing both of those opinions about Neil LeBoot. One – I think it's possible he just is a really shitty dialogue person. He's shitty at writing dialogue. For someone who's a playwright, that's pretty damning. Again, many people are probably saying, that's bullshit. It's just a bad movie. But it seems like he legitimately doesn't understand how people talk to each other. And again, he didn't just write The Wicker Man. He directed it. So theoretically, he had some say into how this stuff works. And then the other point is that I am starting to suspect that he is not satirizing misogyny, that he might just be a misogynist. Um, and so I think, I think Wicker Man does far more damage in my, uh, in my respect than, than, um, says it's a bad Wicker Man movie. I think it makes me really go, does, is Neil Lebout, Lebout, does that guy suck? I read a bunch of interviews with him after this to see how he reacted to, um, the sort of uh, the public condemnation of this terrible movie. The the two vibes I got, one, because I was watching him in interviews and he's someone who just sort of throws out a swirl of ideas and tries to use that as a defense. He's uh, he's a writer who's not good at constructing his own, his own thoughts and his own narratives, which 
I don't understand how he's gotten multiple Hollywood movies made and has his own successful TV show on Sci-Fi Channel. He has that Van, five, Van Helsing yeah, show. He wrote the Van, Van Helsing show for five years, which yeah. we discovered both its existence and unfortunately, I mean, sad, sad news for the Van Helsing fans. The final season was this year, 2021. <laughs> Can I ask you a quick question? Hold on. Have you seen In the Company of the Men? It's, it's a movie that's like, weirdly, if you missed it, I think you have to basically have it on DVD to watch it. Uh, no, I haven't seen it. Okay. It was a movie that was that was recommended back in the day, um, and it was pitched to me in the way you were talking about, where it was like, oh, it's about the toxicity of the inner life of males. And I was like, I'm 15. I don't know if I need to see Aaron Heckart be a jerk. Um, that sort of that sort of narrative that, that uh, oh, maybe his peak behind the curtain on toxic masculinity was actually a peak behind his own toxic masculinity. He talks about this a lot in interviews, how like, oh, the, the critics, they just decided I was a misogynist one day. And watching uh, this movie, and from what I hear about his other movies, it sounds like he told on himself to borrow a phrase? Yeah, I think that's right. Like, the problem is, like, seeing this movie and, and reading some of those interviews as well, Peter, it does feel like maybe critics saw in the company the men and interpret this as this, like, pitch black satire and um, screed against toxic masculinity. But maybe it is, like, the thing is, like, I can now look at it from the perspective of there. You know, all those movies that are like – think of all the movies that like film bros and assholes and incels have like, you know, decide like Fight Club is this – you know, Fight Club written by a gay man about capitalism is actually about like how women suck and stuff like that, right? Like – or about about how, how good it is to be an alpha male and stuff like that. And this movie is entirely about a island of women – and where our protagonist, who we are supposed to be on the side of, it's not totally like the original Wicker Man, where he, he's kind of a he's kind of a sh- dickhead. Yeah, <laughs> like he's, he's not a he's not an asshole, but he's just this like he's a bum. He's like a little bit like he's eight degrees down from if Mister Bean was investigating the island. Yes, and it's, it's clearly not a villain, right? Yeah. He like he's just a stuffy British conservative man who happens to be a virgin well into his forties, and that plays into the plot. Yeah, it's more functions. The original Wicker Man functions as an almost an allegory about culture clash. In this movie, we are kind of supposed to be on Nicolas Cage's side. He's shown as a good guy from this opening sequence in the diner leading into the highway chase. Dealy, he's supposed he's he's presented as as our hero. So when he says stuff like he's yelling at all these women that they're liars and that they're deceitful, that is our our writer and our director speaking directly to us about this character. This character is nothing but a hero turned victim. When you start to think, oh, maybe this movie is about how authority figures, notably cops, just uh, become these patriarchal. Literally can go around saying it doesn't matter if I don't have authority. I yes. need a search warrant. I'm a, I'm a cop. These patriarchal icons of society and, uh, you know, even if they and, – and sometimes these old societies, these old folk, folk horror societies um, will teach them a thing or two out the old ways. You can't say that about this. You could say that no. about the original one. This movie has multiple sequences that establish that – He's trying to save a girl that 
he uh, eventually finds out is his daughter and eventually finds out he doesn't need to save her. Uh, and then his wife or ex-fiance ends up being on the island. So you feel double betrayed when that happens. Like you're supposed to be along the ride with him as a uh, man from the outside normal world, quote unquote, going into this weirdo uh, feminist uh, utopia. Apis? Apiarists? What do you, what do you call people who do <laughs> beekeeping and honey collection? Well, Peter, I call them the bee's knees, but that's just me because I have a lot of respect for people that devote their lives to, to beekeeping. And if you, by the way, if you're, if you're taking care of bees, cover those bees' knees because they will sting you. Yeah, I, I, they're taking care of beesness every day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Bach, Bachman Turner over hive, uh, over hive. There you go. God damn it. <laughs> I was trying to talk and think at the same time. Well, I was using your vampire. Thank you. No, thank you for that. You're welcome. It was a team effort all the way. But yeah, it it, um, that's the thing. So in the first movie, I don't remember if it's supposed to be like this matriarchy, but it makes like all the men in this. They never comment on it. Are like literal like um, whipping boy slaves. They actually don't make like a big deal out of it. But every time you see a man, he like isn't allowed to talk and has like whip marks on his body. So it like. It is this – I mean, I know for a fact that does not happen in the first one. But it, there, there is a lot of like a utopian matriarchy that then uses that like um, – it really is like the shittiest uh, anti-feminist or misogyny thing that like this idea that um, somehow like a matriarch or a, a, a woman run society would be somehow more evil than a male run society. Like that feels like what it's doing. Like, oh, they're not just mean and violent and, and ruthless. They're crueler. They're, uh, they, they're more heartless than we are. Like they, uh, you know, they turn the knife and stuff like that. They, you know, yeah, if you come to a men island where they want to burn you on the wicker man, they'll take you, they'll burn you on the wicker man. They don't rip out your heart in the process. I can't think of, I can't think of anything worse than going to a place called Men Island. <laughs> I mean, I know there's an Isle of Man. If you can go to, if you have HBO Max, you can go to Fuckboy Island. <laughs> this movie seems like him telling on himself where he's like, I think women suck. And it makes me really skeptical of his his uh, in the company of the man or your friends and neighbors. Both the movies that, to be fair, I haven't seen since probably the early early two thousand. So I I could maybe have just watched those without having seen the Wicker Man and been like, oh wait, is this shitty? Uh, yeah, possible. I don't know. Like again, or maybe I would watch it and go, okay, no, he had the. This is like whether it was made by a misogynist, like you know, it could be like a Robin Polanski repulsion situation where yeah that guy's a real dickhead but this is a pretty good look into like um uh violence against women yeah so uh who knows but i i think but i think beyond that is like this this being like a thematic mess it really is just incredibly boring like you can't have a protagonist that's this stupid Unless you're making a fucking Naked Gun or I guess a Mr. Bean movie. Like you you need you need a, a, a point of view character who makes some sense. And like I, I don't try to get into the cinema thing, sins thing or like isn't this character stupid? But I don't think we're supposed to think he's stupid. And the fact that he is literally maybe the dumbest cop in a non-comedy ever committed – 
to film. Like, the fact that he can't figure out these easy revelations. There's a point where he literally just wanders into a school full of girls. And I wrote the quote. He decides that the school does know about his missing daughter. He doesn't know it's his daughter then. And he comes back into the schoolhouse because he figures thinks he figures something out. And he's like, you guys are just a bunch of little liars. And then he turns to the teacher and you're the biggest liar of them all. And it's like it's like a five year old playing cop. Like, yeah. you're you're a bunch of liars. You're the biggest liar. No, you are. I'm rubber. You're glue. Yeah, and and that feeds into uh, the ending where Nicolas Cage is burned uh, with the conscious knowledge of his uh, ex-fiance who is leading him along the entire time. And the actual sort of, um, not quite stinger, but should have been a stinger, I guess. Actually, shouldn't have been in the movie. Um, is uh, uh, Well, hold on. I, I definitely think of all movies, this movie should have had a stinger. <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot about the stinger. Yeah. So, they burn Nick Cage. If you want him to say the bees, get the director's cut. Yeah. Or just watch YouTube. <laughs> or, yeah. Or, or just hear us say it and never think about it again. <laughs> that works, too. Just, yeah, listen to this for three years. I Yeah, I, I actually forgot about the singer until you mentioned it. And I do realize that's like him going, hey, I'm back. I'm back for more really quick. I'm a misogynist. Yes. So there's a scene of two men in a bar. Um, do you want to tell me who they are? Uh, yeah, one is played by noted respecter of women, James Franco. <laughs> um, pre him, him joining like the Judd Apatow crowd. So he's just a, a pretty boy who uh, uh, manipulates and... Assaults women, I guess. I don't yeah, know he's the women, the women respecter. Uh, who's the other one? The other oh, it's uh, 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 what's his name? It's uh, Jason Ritter. Yeah, yeah. Who seems like an all around good guy, and I hope he didn't make friends with James Franco. <laughs> yes. So for some reason, the movie has weird cameos at the end. I imagine similar to the Aaron Eckhart cameo. It's blink, yeah. blink and you'll miss it. Um, at the beginning of the movie, I imagine they're just his friends doing him a favor. Yeah, I, I don't think the movie could have not succeeded without uh, Aaron Eckhart being a trucker at a gas station who pays his bill and walks off screen. Yeah, I, it clearly wasn't he had lines and they were cut. Like, he 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 was he just showed up with like a shitty fake mustache and a trucker hat like that's that's it for, yeah for what it's worth like i like aaron eckhart just fine i don't think he's big enough to be like holy shit aaron eckhart yeah yeah <laughs> sitting at the table like you gotta get like a jack nicholson or someone like that like holy shit was that jack nicholson yeah this is not um robert duvall in invasion of the body snatchers playing the priest for no fucking reason and then just yeah. disappearing from the movie like we we're like what does that cameo mean? Yeah, it's it's much more the John Mulaney like, was that Dean Cain? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's that. Uh, the women are, are out hunting for random men to take back to the island and sacrifice, I'm guessing. Um, well, yeah, they changed their whole personas. One of them is his ex-fiance. And then one of the other one is kind of this like weak-willed person that we see on the island. And then we see, yeah, we see him like bar hopping and trying to manipulate men to come home with them. Yeah, and that feeds into For the what? idea of like, this uh, very misogynistic, like, succubus idea. And I'm not saying you yeah. can't use the succubus idea to great effect. Like, I even like... I'm saying Neil Laboot can't. I'm just saying Neil Laboot can't. I, I'm, I'm, I've seen plenty of movies that are riffing on the, the succubus idea. Even, like, we did Lore on the podcast. Oh, yeah. And that's, like, you know, a mermaid-literal succubus. And then uh, I even like that VH, VHS segment that's about a bunch of, like, college bros. Frat getting, guys, yeah. Getting slaughtered by... Uh, a woman that they take home and well yeah a lot a lot of times like the, those two examples which are good examples are aren't men monsters yeah <laughs> like 
in the trope of like this idea of a succubus and kind of deconstructing that myth. This one is, aren't women monsters? Yes. One last baffling thing for us to just to ensure at the end of the movie we're we're quadruple confused because all of the interesting stuff in this movie happens in literally the last 15 minutes. It's dedicated to Johnny Ramone. Is that like, is he one of the Ramones? Yeah, he's one of the Ramone bros. Oh, okay. There's Joey, Johnny, Dee Dee, Tommy, Marky, Richie, Elvis, and CJ. I mean... That's a lot of Ramones. That's a lot. Of, I'm imagining some of them are, you know, like... One he died two years before this. Yeah, I mean... Sure. Kind of look like, in what capacity would he have known... Oh, never mind. He's a staunch supporter of the Republican Party. Well, fuck him. Yeah. Who that cares? explains why Neil LeBute did it. He's like, women are secretly bad. Pass it on. <laughs> yes. Because there's not really much to talk about the ending, except for the bees sequence, right? And I want to jump in really quickly and just talk a little bit about the, the sub-theme of this episode, and then talk about the bees scene and, and the ending, and then we can we can move on. So, like, right. when Nicholas Cage called himself a nouveau sh- shaman in an interview, and then, like, preceding interviews, he was like, oh, I was just, like, I, I put nouveau in there because it sounded fancy, but what I was really trying to get at is like <clears throat> acting is like a piece of magic. And that's the way that that's the way I approach acting is like I'm inhibiting the spirit of this character. And like, you know, it's not as pretentious as it sounds if you actually go listen to people that are that do acting programs like this is this is just sort of how I get in character. I, I like to think of it as doing a little piece of magic as opposed to me playing pretend. Um, that's how I throw myself so fully at the character. Um, and sometimes in movies like this, where it's not so much that there's exchanges of dialogue somebody is giving him like a small amount of just boring ass energy and he's refusing to engage with it and just chucking a high level energy at him he's not he's not acting with them he's acting at them and i think that that's part of the reason why people either people blame or people call nicholas cage a bad actor is sometimes when he's in not great movies he's not acting with he's not doing that like respectful exchange with his 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 um fellow actors like molly parker is in this movie and in the liar sequence in the classroom and both of them are unable to sink to each other's energies at all nicholas cage is acting at her and like while that doesn't mean that he's a good a, a good actor um it does it does uh back up a point that i'm making that like nicholas cage sometimes if he's in a movie nicholas cage has never ruined a movie he has only taken uh, bad movies and tried desperately, desperately to elevate them. And sometimes the director, his fellow cast, are not willing to match his energy, maybe for good reasons, maybe for bad reasons. And then there's this disjointed thing going on. But there's no movie without Nicolas Cage. So, like, if he's going to go fucking wackadoo, you either need to rein him in, like a lot of directors have, just like directors do with Jim Carrey. Like, there's ways to work around and have respectful ways to work with these actors that are crazy, but, like, you can focus them. I don't think he's ever ruined a movie. I think I think no. movies like Vampire's Kiss would be unwatchable if you had anybody else in the role. Well, I know we disagree on Vampire's Kiss, but, I mean, yeah. I mean, but I, I think agree at that point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Vampire's Kiss rules because of Nicolas Cage. I, I agree. I I agree with you. He has definitely never ruined a movie. He only elevates. Like, that's – that, which is – I yeah, it's um, like when he's really, really good, it's like why would you ever need anyone else in this role? And when he's not good or not in a good movie, like, it's not like someone would have fared better. Which, again, not to get back to the Bruce Willis or like all of these like 80s or 90s or even 2000 era movie stars, like – 
If you go through the direct-to-video bins over the last 10 years, you probably will be surprised how many like huge movie stars are in these these movies. And I guarantee if you watch most of them, you would go, oh, it's – you know, I, I don't know, good script, bad script, but that person is, is not doing much to that movie. And I think probably Nicolas Cage is the only reason – to watch some of those movies like it's he's one of the few people that i think uh you know i never watched his left behind movie but i do think that why people were like oh that could be fun is because of nicholas cage where michael keaton uh, an actor who i think is you know fantastic and i love if he's in um uh, uh left behind or name any of the other like alec baldwin or what like you know, whatever else from that, I don't think it, it even picks people's interest enough to want to watch it because it is true. Like, he he doesn't save Wickeran, but one of the things that is mildly fun about the – the only thing that keeps it from being just a complete I want to go to sleep, this movie is unwatchable, is how hard he's trying from the opening frame to the last frame. He's elevating. He's trying to elevate it. He's, he's trying, trying to, to do something, and and it, none of it works because it's a poorly written, terribly directed movie with no point. But like he he's almost like trying to will something to happen. Like will a direction that we just talked about. Like what if he is just an unhinged parody of police officers that's going to this island and. Now, you're always against him. Now, the rest of the problem is the rest of the movie isn't shot around that, but that, like, feels a little bit what he's trying to do with it. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And, like, the my original – or I hadn't seen the first two movies in a long time, but my original pitch for this episode was Nicolas Cage in three modes. Cash in – um, him elevating a crappy movie and then him fully synced to the movie and giving us genuine magic. Uh, and what I'm realizing now is those categories are, are very fraught because Nicolas Cage brings an energy to movies that's neutral. It's not good or yeah. bad and it can be used for good effect or bad effect, but it needs to be harnessed by a good script and a good filmmaker who knows how to work with him and collaborate with him. And um, not to jump ahead, but Panos Cosmatos in Mandy he he said in interviews time and time again, he was like, if Nicolas Cage made a suggestion about a scene on a different line reading or a different way to intonate how I thought a scene should happen, I always listened to him because it was always a better idea. Like, and, and what that, what the implication there is that like Panos Cosmatos is in control, but when he's working and collaborating with Nicolas Cage... Nicholas Cage feels comfortable enough with him to be like, I'm going to try something weird. And there's even shots in the behind the scenes on the Blu-ray where <clears throat> um, he's talking about a, a certain sequence in, in uh, Mandy where he breaks a breaks a guy's neck. Oh, no. Uh, a man attacks him uh, after he thought he killed this man in, in this house sequence. And uh, Nicholas Cage completely changes the line. And he, but he checks with Panos very calmly. He's like, how would you like it if I did a take like this? And Panos is like, no, that's excellent. Go with it. And in this movie, you can tell Neil Butte is just letting Nick Cage run rampant because he doesn't care. And the three modes... Or he doesn't know what his movie is. He doesn't know what his movie is. And the three modes... Actually, the truth is that the three modes are interlaced in all of his all of his work, like these 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 um, these good movies, bad movies. It's it's Nicolas Cage in disengaged cash in mode where he's just a zombie. 
there's Nicolas Cage in I'm going to chuck energy at the scene and I'm not actually engaging with what the, the overall product of it is. And then there's Nicolas Cage fully synced up to the product and imbuing it with like cosmic spiritual energy. And the trick, I think, is that in Mandy, there's none of the first character, the category. There's none of the um, there's none of the uh, just being numb and not engaged. Even the quiet scenes, he's fully engaged. But there's a lot of categories two and three where categories two, he's like, I'm going to chuck a bunch of energy at Richard Brake and see what he comes up with. And then and then scene three is like and then it's the category three, him fully synced up with the movie. It's him sitting with um, Andrea Riseborough having a very intimate moment and just letting her completely own the scene, this intimate, lovely scene between a couple. And this movie has all of category one one and two and that makes for a shitty movie because he's either falling asleep or he's yelling at everyone and there's it's there's this rudderless directionless thing that can only be caught it can only be reduced down to a youtube highlight reel yeah i think that's right uh and i think that leads us to our other like preamble movie which is drive angry which is really just him not like he almost looks he He's playing a character that's theoretically sad and depressed because it's a character that's come back from hell to save his daughter's kid. Um, wait, his yeah, his daughter's kid. I think that's right. It sounds it kind of sounded gross, but it's not. <laughs> he has a daughter who had a kid. His daughter's dead. He's trying to save his kid, and he just feels like he's a little bit like I, I don't care, and has no visual direction. It's directed by the guy who I think is other most popular movie is dracula 2000 and he's doing a lot of like like the prophecy 3 uh sequels it's done in like the worst era of 3d where it didn't know how to do it's like this came out at the same time as like final destination 3d right which is actually final destination 4 where uh it's like i don't know just throw stuff at the camera (laughs) don't don't try to incorporate it into anything Um, and it is like just him in complete autopilot mode. And I don't, I think sometimes you get shocked into realizing that he is in autopilot mode when like the one thing I like wholeheartedly love in this movie, William Finchner's like demon character, when he comes on screen, you're like, hey, that's like the energy Nicolas Cage usually brings to these type of movies. Like, why is he so sedated? So really quickly, yeah, Nicolas Cage just starts out where he's killing people on the road. There's uh, He's followed by William Finchner, who's like, clearly there's something off about him from the get-go. He's playing someone named the accountant, who is like act, acting like, where's this guy? Like, he doesn't care about consequences or who he pisses off. Uh, anyways, there's also uh, uh, this this woman played by Amber Heard, who has a shitty boyfriend and is working at this this uh, this coffee shop where people sexually – her boss sexually harasses her. She quits. Uh, but in the opening scene, Nicolas Cage's car was trashed and he needs a car. So he's playing John Milton. Wink. Wink. This movie is specifically Whoa. for 12-year-olds to look up later, as we talked about. Uh, everyone wants to fuck Nicolas Cage. Uh, that's the other thing. Just like you'd want to be if you were Nicolas Cage and you were a little boy who wanted to be a big boy who was a big movie star. Can we can we pause there really quickly? Because I have a sure. point to make that there's literally no space for anywhere yeah. else in this episode. Which is that Nicolas Cage has not really been like sexually viable as a 
leading man for probably 20 it depending on your 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 opinion yeah most most of his movies most of his movies where he's like the romantic lead are about a little bit about how he's in he's an odd duck raising arizona and moonstruck and and some of those or you're seeing like a, a, a depressed core of a man in a relationship that's ending like the family man or or weatherman yeah and i think like he, he doesn't always he rare I, I can think of very few examples of him feeling like he's a member of a like legitimate couple uh, or a legitimate family um because like um, yeah, I think Raising Arizona is a great example. Yes, yes. Point Sorry, guys, I mean in the past twenty they're years. They're wackos. Yeah, <laughs> um, because he's he's uh, in in Colorado Space. There's some really great moments early on in the movie where he's being very sweet and intimate, or being a little weird. He's like he's a weird dad, but he's like a loving dad early on. But that disappears quickly. And Mandy, like I said, he's super sweet, super intimate with Mandy in, in the few scenes they get together. And that totally works. But like, for some reason, there's a ton of Nicolas Cage movies that insist that he's like still this like sexually viable man and not and, and that his sexuality is not incredibly um, off putting. And and, <laughs> and like, I, I like it, like it better when he's a like. At, when his he has the sweetness of a cornball dad, like I like him in yeah. Kickass. Um, yeah, I don't like Kickass as a movie, but he's good in it. First one's well directed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, mean I, I don't dislike it. It's just like a, it was. It was from an era where we were like, what if superheroes superheroes were bad? kill people? <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a there's there's a strange strain in this movie, and even parts of Wicker Man, and we're expected to see him in this movie specifically fucking during a gunfight in one of the only oh sequences that seems kind of fun. But it's just oh ripping off. You like that scene? I I literally wrote this is one of the worst things I've ever watched. I hate every second. All the action in the movie is terribly directed. I think it would be fun if it wasn't like. A woman who is screaming, like, she's essentially being raped during that part of it because she's out of it and then has the incredibly immature thing of, like, but she had an orgasm um, while Nicolas Cage looks bored out of his mind smoking a cigar with a bottle of Jack Daniels, lazily shooting people. I, I, Peter, that was the point where if William Fincher hadn't pulled me out, I almost fully turned against the movie and was like, I fucking hate this. I'm not saying it's a good scene. I'm saying I'm saying that like Nicolas Cage being totally asleep and the action sequence moving so slowly in a way that's like oh, totally un- unexciting. Also, it's a ripoff of the. Isn't there a very similar scene in Shoot 'Em Up? I've never seen Shoot 'Em Up, but I'm. Uh, doesn't he fuck falling out of an airplane? I think so, but he fucks while shooting it. people. Great. That's all I. Well, hopefully, it's better done than this. But yeah, this is the action. of This movie is completely inept. But the point is that this movie and um, and even Wicker Man, they expect you to accept Nicolas Cage as a um, sexually viable man. And yeah, I like literally everyone he meets is like, I need to fuck him. I cannot. I cannot understand it. I I I don't know if it's supposed to be a joke or what. Some of these scripts are not written for him. Obviously, also. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, again, it it feels like. Like, I imagine this writer and director of this movie is a very sad boy who, under different circumstances, would be an incel. And so he is, of course, of course, the lean his movie, just like everyone that sees him is like, I gotta fuck that guy, right? Like, I'm gonna make out with him on my job at the coffee house. And when I think about not fucking someone, my new, uh, incredibly attractive younger companion's like, you need to fuck someone. I'm fucking someone. And live your life. Go fuck people. Like, he gets support for fucking people that are throwing themselves at him like yeah 
it, again, it feels like a movie written by a 12 year old for 12 year olds without any like understanding of like how eye rolling all of this is like this is one of the few I, i'm serious peter like this is one of the few movies where i'm like god i feel like i'm a like my parents where i'm like <laughs> this is just unnet like you know i don't know why they need to have all the swears you know or something like my parents used to say where i'm like and, and i actually feel that way about this movie they use fuck like a 12 year old i say fuck uh, uh, more than occasionally and it just feels like your mother fuck like they're eating all the word like they're getting away with something it is like everything about this makes me feel like an old man who doesn't like who like this in my day we uh, we had movies that were not rated by the MPAA and we liked it we knew we never were gonna see a penis or a ball or a tit um, like that's that's what this movie made me feel like. It's incredibly childish. Uh, it's like it's it's like Bart Simpson directed in front of a movie. It is. So Amber Heard, uh, like you you figure out thirty minutes before the movie decides to be a surprise that uh, Nicholas Cage has not been in prison like he set claims, um, but he's escaped from hell. There's this uh, cult leader who's made a pact with the devil who had who had uh, who his daughter was. Uh, was 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 with and at some point he tried to make her like or tried to rape her and then killed her when she didn't go along with it um nicholas cage saw this in hell and escaped he's pursued by william finchner as the accountant but he stole the god killing gun um you know that can kill uh ethereal or demonic beings in a way that human guns can't so Amber Heard eventually like figures out all this stuff and uh, because he, he confronts the cult and tries to get his daughter's baby back, who the cult has possession of, and he gets shot in the face and then comes back to life because he's already dead. And then they explain the whole thing and Amber Heard's like, I'm going to go along with it. I've never fought for anything in my life because she had an abusive boyfriend who ends up getting uh, first beaten up by Nicolas Cage when they steal the car and then eventually killed by William Finchner's character. Um, and essentially, William Finchner eventually like catches up with them, and he's like, "You aren't here to kill me. I'm supp- I, you could have escaped without me." They end up killing the cult leader with the god gun, and Amber Heard is like, um, "He tells Amber Heard, you're my daughter now. You raised this baby. I guess. <laughs> Don't ever let anyone take this baby from me.'" And she's like, "Okay, person I met 12 hours ago. Um, this is my baby now. This is what I've always wanted in my life." Uh, and then uh, William Finchner and Nicolas Cage drive back to hell because that is where they both live. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's good to go home. I mean, they say you can never go home, but if you live in hell, you're, you can go home. Um, it's a long bridge, though. I mean, you think hell would have a more efficient way to get there. Um, I mean, a bridge is still better than the highway to hell. A hundred percent, they couldn't afford the rights to that song. Oh, a hundred percent, three hundred percent. But yeah, so this movie, this movie sucks. But um, the, hold on, you seem. I think you like my review on Letterboxd. I remember I it being. I remember it being very fun. I don't think it's fun at all. William Finchner gives this movie two stars to me because he has a five star performance. There is a scene where Nicolas Cage is being held up by the cops and he's surrounded, and he rolls in on this semi bopping to disco music and then stops the semi walks on air and causes all the cop cars to like explode through his uh, crash and then just like walks up to Nicolas Cage and is like hey 
Come on, you need me. Like it is it's such a fun like every moment he's doing his thing, I loved it. I don't understand why the rest of the movie can't be more of that. Uh yeah, yeah. I mean, William Fechner is like a as the accountant who says, yeah, he's a grim reaper figure. His uh, he needs to bring back lost souls to the devil. Um and he is imbuing this movie with with energy that you're not getting from Nicolas Cage, unfortunately. He usually would. He usually would. I think there's a couple good scenes with him and William Fickner where they're exchanging barbs. And uh, notably, oh, yeah. right at the end when they get in the car together, I feel like that's like a nice little moment. And then there's one there's one moment of Nicolas Cage. I think he's like sitting by a fire talking about how his why he's so fucking pissed and why he has to, he had to escape from hell to do this job that I think is great. Like it's him trying for yeah. a, a minute or two. It's one him putting second. actual dramatic heft behind a moment. And then he puts the sunglasses back on and then the movie just, the movie just goes away again. And there's like a weirdly good cast in this. William Fechner, we already talked about, but like Tom Atkins is in this. He's not very good in it, but Tom Atkins is in this as, as a bumbling sheriff kind of figure. <clears throat> and then um, David Morse is also in this very briefly, perhaps the most overqualified David Morse yeah. uh, appearance ever. Because He's David in there for eight seconds. Couldn't couldn't Patrick Lussier have hired some like I don't know some like oh, I mean he already got Tom Atkins. I mean it's the same thing with Tom Atkins too, right? Like he's he does get one very funny moment, and then like he's like oh it's like okay that was nice to see Tom Atkins. Thank you for wasting him. Yeah, yeah, but like all of the fun bits are with the accountant. So there's a sequence yeah. with him torturing one of the redneck uh, satanic cult members, which we have to talk about the cult because oh. it's cult month. Yeah. Um, redneck satanic cult members in the church. That's just fantastic. Um, he's super dismissive of everybody, like every everybody. Oh, you made a deal with Satan. Okay, well, I guess he must have forgot to tell me that. <laughs> yeah, that whole stuff is great. Oh, you like your little, uh, you like your little star there? What's that supposed to be? Like, so good. And I love the, he reveals that the devil doesn't want this baby sacrificed. That like the yeah. devil doesn't like child sacrifice in his name. Like that's not something he's he's into. Um, and so he's like, all right, I can make the devil happy by stopping this this. Um, this guy, Jonah King, who's... Uh, yeah, he doesn't like that the cult leader made a deal with him. He's like, this guy's an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want... He, uh, like, it, it's implied, like, there is some ritual that, like, caused him to get immortal life, but that the devil wants him fucking gone. But I love the idea of, like, I, I think there's a reading of the Bible, and we don't have time to go into this, where, like, the devil is the good guy, or Satan is the good guy, where, like, you know, God is, like, murdering people all the time, and, and Satan's like, maybe just love them and let them have free will and stop being assholes to them. <laughs> like, that's kind of the Paradise Lost thing, right? That's the retelling of the fall, where it's, like, uh, uh, an angel who just wanted some level of free will and to not be controlled by this, you know, fascist. Um <laughs> Who wants to break free and he's like, like a fascist leader would, uh, sentences him to internal suffering. And, you know, he's, the Satan's like, hey, better to better to, you know, be away from a fucking fascist leader and, and be miserable than to have to, you know, uh, bow towards this, this psycho guy. And like, that's a reading of Satan that I think is actually like ridiculously present in the the actual bible as well as a lot of stuff that i think christians like glom onto like paradise lost and i i like the idea of this movie portraying a satan who's like 
a super good guy. <laughs> well, well, yeah, he, he's he's interested. In, he's 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 stuck in an awkward place. He has to fulfill. I mean, this is also the 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 depiction of Lucifer in like the Neil Gaiman's universe. Um, this is uh the depiction of Lucifer in in a lot of texts, which is that like. He was uh, he was a perfect servant, and then he was rejected for questioning his leader. And now he's he he's given a, a thankless task. And um, is challenging God such a bad thing? Like challenging the ultimate ruler? Like shouldn't you challenge somebody who has complete control over you on that level? Yeah, and when, uh, yeah. When a person's not to go to atheism one on one, but like in just like the idea of like, oh, if you in any way don't follow my rules i'm gonna torture you eternity like that's not a good dude yeah this actually this movie is is weirdly in line with what the actual church of satan is preaching which is yeah. essentially they're an atheist organization um but they're they're co-opting a uh worship of satan as an inverse to religion and the idea is with all the things that theoretically like uh, humanism would yes it's it's secular humanism but they uh, they they adopt some of the um they adopt iconography. Some, the iconography. There are obviously like Satan worshiping Satanists within the Church of Satan because the Church of Satan, weirdly enough, is a pan-religious organization. Two, like, yeah, there's two main Church of Satan's, right? Yeah, but the, also just regular Church of Satan is like, well, if you're a Catholic and you want to come, that's fine. We're not going to make you like renounce your baptism or anything. It's yeah. just you're you're now a member and you have to you know, pay your dues or whatever. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's largely, yeah, it's a humanist, it's a humanist organization. And with this, it's weirdly in line with that, which is that like, um, <laughs> it's weirdly in line with that where it's like, no, Satan doesn't want you sacrificing babies and raping women and murdering people. Satan just likes when you're like a hedonist or Satan likes when you like, you enjoy yeah, the pleasures of the morality, flesh. dumb, dumb. And then it becomes, but I think it's more coming from not from like a um, let's let's uh, you know give Satan credit, and more from a perspective of metal isn't actually always about evil. Metal is often about rejection of uh, conservative norms, and this movie yeah. is supposed to be like a metal movie. It's supposed to be like a movie inspired by metal aesthetics, like somebody driving a like badass '70s car out of hell. Um, to go blow up people with shotguns like that's that's like fun like docking era metal right um yeah. it's those aesthetics over like um gloom metal where satan is like the ultimate darkness and he likes anything that's evil um satan has like a rule set like this is at 2011 we've talked about this with comedy too like it makes the mistake i think that like rejecting christian norms includes like being able to laugh too much about rape. <laughs> yeah. They don't the Catholic Church doesn't want you to have sex. What if you can have sex with people that don't want to have sex with you? It's like, wait, what no, you went over. You went way over what we were talking about. Um yeah, oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, the movie I don't really want to get into like the homophobia and stuff and how everyone's yeah, horny and I mean, drunk. Hundred percent piece of shit scumbum movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll, the director made one good movie. I really like the My Bloody Valentine remake. Um, I mean, I think that movie is surprisingly okay based on its pedigree. I wouldn't say it's like great. I think it's like, good. I think I probably gave it three, three, three and a half stars. Yeah, not bad. I think it's good. Not, it's good. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, he made he didn't make all shitty movies, and that movie has some really great like killing sequences. So the ineptitude here is particularly like yeah, that movie theoretically makes good use of 3D, which this one does not. Yeah, yeah, this movie is from the era, era where like 3D was even being chucked at sort of cheap cash in efforts, and this movie is so sluggish. I can imagine being in the theaters and just feeling ill as like a bunch of um like satan bullets are flying towards the screen at slow motion as the camera spins around like i i i'm just thinking about myself getting motion sick i'm so glad the 3d era is over um i saw multiple 3d movies because i wanted to see a movie opening weekend and that was the only the only seats available for that friday night yeah, I mean this. I mean it was an era for a while where it's like, oh, you can essentially double your box office because three D charges more. Yeah, and, and so you ended up having like. I mean, it it was for a while. I mean, I remember when I I don't know what the the death of three D again is. I mean that that is a cyclical thing that keeps happening. Where, uh, but but this one, I mean, it was market. I think the actual original title was like, or everyone thought it was the title was Dri- Drive Angry 3D, right? Yeah. And like, it has the things of like the credits coming at you and William Fickner throwing the coin up in the air and coming at the audience. But like, it's not doing anything interesting. I think the only movie from this era that does the interesting things with 3D is probably uh, Jackass 3D. Yeah, maybe. It, yeah, um, it, it's it's basically yeah, Avatar it was, has its yeah. yeah it was, Avatar is is gorgeous because he was like, I'm going to add fields of fields of depth. He invented cameras to do it. Yeah, I'm going to add fields. Like, of depth. look, if like you invent gonna, cameras, even if you accidentally start a trend no one likes, fine. Call it a gimmick. Call it what you will. But like, there's a reason why we were hungry for this for a, a bit, and it took them a long time to catch on. Like, oh, you either have to do it well. Or don't do it at all because we're we have poisoned the well. So I want to talk about the messianic cult a little bit, and then we can probably move to the yeah, end we, of this. Yeah, we got to move on. The messianic cult is led by a guy Jonah King, who is a very boring character. There's it's performed really boringly too. I know that's that's a also a boring thing to say is to call something boring, but it's bland. He's just like. He's he, he's just a, a southern accent doing a uh, very light sort of like um, zero charisma. Uh, you need, you need he's zero charisma. You need to be a charismatic messianic figure. He's got plus three dexterity when he steals that baby, but zero charisma. Yeah, the only thing I like about I mean I like the idea of him basically just being a like a Baptist preacher who uh, got somehow got caught up with the devil and then he converts his his flock. But his flock is just like a bunch of rednecks. Like, I love the idea of a bunch of like redneck Satanists, because you think about Satanists as the, the elite, as the top tier of society. You think about them as like a, a kill list thing, you know, judges and uh, members of parliament and priests and yada yada. But instead, it's like this is like a poor parish and they're just like guys in overalls and like holes in their T-shirts and they've got shotguns and pitchforks and stuff like I think that's like kind of a clever idea. Um, as a as a cult, because you're not going for um, the Hammer era, which was like very effete or very sophisticated people in it that are well dressed and they only must their hair at the very end when they're calling down Satan or whatever. <laughs> I think it's I think it's a fun inversion if you're making a trashy horror movie like this to have like redneck Satanists, and I would like for another movie to pick that up and do something with it. Yeah, I think it's a good call out. I, I think there's some some good things here that uh, 
are mostly wasted by a shitty director making a shitty movie. But again, not a terrible concept. Like, I'm, I'm always down for, like, a muscly 70s, I'm back from hell to save my baby. Like, sure. Uh, this just isn't the movie. Yeah. That does it well. I watched Angry Peter. I didn't drive angry. No, you angry. I'm glad you weren't driving that day. I was, I mean, technically I was in 3D. <laughs> you, I mean, yeah. I I am, you're in more than 3D. I hope you don't have like a Lego head up stuck up your nose or something so you can't smell. Regardless of what, what to be clear, 4D is not like they throw water at you. I know it isn't movie marketing, but in real life, that's just also 3D. Um, were you in, um, what are the 4DX or whatever, where your chair shakes? I think 4D would include time. And I I don't, again, I think it's a marketing term. I'm always in 3D though, Peter. Always. Hmm. Interesting. I mean. Also, if someone vibrates my chair and throws water at me and makes like a stink smell come out of my armrest or whatever, uh, I'm still in 3D. That does not make me in 4D. I think if I traveled back in time, smell isn't the, fifth, the fourth dimension. <laughs> Are you telling me uh, this? No, it's, a, it's a fifth sense. The fifth sense. Sorry, fifth sense, fourth smell, dimension. Smells crime. It's like uh, saying the twentieth century is actually the nineteen hundreds. That's true. I have seen those things where like Zoomers start calling, have called the nineties like the late twentieth century, and that that does bum me out a little. Yeah, that's that's a lot. That's a lot to argue with. Um, I think we're mostly right. done here, but we're I just want I, I want to call out one last thing, which is that um, this movie feels like a it feels like uh, one of those situations where um, we got to have a redemption. Like I, I like you want to see Nicolas Cage shoot up a bunch of cultists and tear them apart, uh, even at the expense of his own soul. Like. Yeah, like you want to see that and then you watch Drive Angry and you're like, yeah, maybe not so much. Mandy is like a redemption on that concept. Mandy is actually delivering on what you want in Drive Angry. And also Drive Angry is like shitty, like I said, docking. Like Drive Angry is like shitty 80s, like it's it's, it's crap metal. Um, Yeah. Mandy is like true, like actual metal. Mandy is like the the real deal shit that actually like gives you the vibes that you want. Um, So let's let's get to the main show. Yeah, let's let's watch. Peter, are you ready to talk about Mandy 2D? (laughs) Okay, so when you watch the movie Mandy, you're watching 3D. You're in 3D. 3D. So Mandy 2D in 3D. You name the movie after the person watching it each time. It would be called Aaron 3D. But if you named it after the movie that you're watching, it'd be called Mandy 2D. Well, let's Aaron on, Aaron on the side of caution and, and, and talk about Mandy. Poke, if you just poke a hole in a piece of paper and use it to cover the entire screen but one dot, you're watching Mandy 1D. <laughs> but the paper is still 3D. And also, if you have sex with a TV under those circumstances, it doesn't count. It doesn't count. <laughs> what if it's in slow motion is slow-mo the fourth dimension uh sure i mean it's time. time right yeah. yeah i think so see Go. i get it it only took eight minutes but i get it you know psychedelic hallucinogenic journey that, on a, that can be summed up in eight seconds a cult kills red's wife red what's kills her, the cult what's her, name? what's her name mandy 
That was eight seconds. He did right? not talk about Cheddar Goblin, and I think that's critical. <laughs> Cheddar Goblin is plot critical. The second act doesn't work without Cheddar Goblin. <laughs> um, but here's actually what happens um, in the movie, just to, to sort of give you a better sense of what the story is. Because on a base level, it's going to sound like the concept of any Nicolas Cage movie, including Drive Angry. Um, but it's and so this much is better a, than that. This, yeah, this is a direct remake of uh, Posmo's uh, father's movie, Tombstone. Oh, I thought that movie was Tom B. Stone. Uh, it is. I don't have time for abbreviations, so I like to <laughs> I like to make everything every name a portmanteau. That's why I call you uh Peter G. Moran. Thank you. Um Wait, how do I combine that into one word? Peter when GM, that's like an M noise. So I think it would just be Peter Moran. Did you hear about the uh the Stevedore who's who uh broke his foot on the dock? No. Yeah, he had to, he had to go uh, and get uh, get himself checked to the doctor. He had to look at his portmanteau. I think the is the doctor part of the joke because it should be uh, the doctor. Sure. I just wanted to make a portmanteau with portmanteau. Um, so what is what actually is happening? Uh, Red is a uh, a gruff man who possibly a veteran. He has like a dark past. Definitely a recovered alcoholic. Um, or recovering alcoholic, depending on how you read the fact that he still has a vodka bottle in his bathroom. Um, and uh, he is with uh, Mandy, um, who's his, his his angel, his healing spirit. Mandy also has had a dark past. It sounds like um, Mandy is not respected in the town. Everyone refers to her as a whore and other sort of like derogatory terms. But to him, she's she's perfect. She's the woman that helps heal him. And... He, he uh, they both live in a very rural area in the mountains in California, and uh, he works as a lumberjack, and she works as a artist, and she's very He's involved okay. in like fantasy community. Yeah. Um, and the, the, at the same time, there's a cult led by the Children of the New Dawn, led by a figure, a messianic figure named uh, Jeremiah Sands, who is a failed musician. We're going to have to talk a lot about the cult because there's some cool shit there. The cult's so good. Very Charlie Manson. Right? Yeah, Charlie Manson because Charlie Manson was a failed musician. If I'm not mistaken, maybe it's not anymore, but for a period of time, Charlie Manson's like album, so to speak, is was on um, Spotify. Like he has a lot of weird demos. He wrote, yeah, tapes. he wrote songs with the Beach Boys. He also boy, – Beach Boys and I, I don't – maybe his album was on Spotify. The other thing that is directly taken from – uh, Charles Manson is that when people make fun of his music, he flips the fuck out. Yes. Yes. Very sensitive about that because he considers himself as an artist first and then messianic figure second. And his failed his failed ability to become an artist <clears throat> is what spurred, uh, you know, was at least the catalyst for violence. You could say there was always going to be violence. Yeah, maybe in some we capacity. should ban art because I feel like Hitler had that problem too. <laughs> like maybe if art's not something that people can do, we have less Mansons and Hitlers. Yeah, yeah. I would say um, people just losing their dreams is probably more accurate. But yeah, let's get rid of pictures. Pictures and, and music. Something I've never gone. caught. It seems like Mandy makes money from her work. Um, 
Well, there's this stupid. I don't even know if I want to talk about the post credit scene because it just led to a, a like. I'm sure someone saw that when he clicks on my stupid fucking website. But like, uh, yeah, there's the whole idea that like she actually is like a professional fantasy cover artist or, co- or fantasy artist who has drawn everything that we've seen in the movie. Which I think. I think that's dumb. And I, don't I think like it's it dumb. I think what's what's better is that she has so healed Red's life and has so involved him, and he loves her art and is super supportive of it. He comes home and he's like, "That's beautiful, babe." Like that's beautiful, babe. And he he comes home. And I think the idea is that this imagery problem. and and while he's on a, a spirit quest to destroy the people that that ruined his life and, and killed Mandy, um, he is. Um, on a, he's literally tripping. He takes this gray LSD at some point that the black skulls are taking, which I'll get to all that in a moment. Um, that makes it so the movie gets more hallucinogenic as it goes. And by the end, it is a full on, uh, either metal album cover or a fan, 80 fantasies paperback cover somewhere in between that style of art. That's or very like expressionistic, with big, bold reds. Seen. Yeah. It's just it's the the whole movie is essentially an album cover come to life, but um, at, at, but the the idea is also that like this movie is imbued with fantasy energy, um, it's particularly like eighties paperback fantasy energy. It's just that the story is pulpy, pulpy, pulpy. So Jeremiah Sands abducts Mandy because he sees her on the side of the road walking one day, and he's like, "I want her." She is uh, drugged by him, and we'll talk about this this whole sequence later. But he's drugged by him. And she uh, rejects his advances and he's like, and he laughs at, she laughs at his music. Um, and he decides, okay, I'm going to make this way worse. And he, instead of her joining the cult and, and falling under his, his drugged out thrall, uh, his Manson family, he sets her on fire in a bag in front of Red, who has been sort of, not quite crucified, but sort of. He has barbed wire wrapped around his mouth and he's, he's uh, attached to a pole. Um, and, uh, Red manages to, he passes out, he wakes up, Red manages to, uh, break free of this, uh, immediately spirals. He, um, g- gets back on booze, he steals, or not steals, he goes and gets his, uh, hunting, uh, bow, uh, uh compound bow from, uh, his old buddy, and it seems like maybe, you know, they're all war buddies, so this is like, this this weapon he calls the Reaper. It's not just for hunting deer. Um, then he builds, and I think maybe the most ridiculous like, stretch for this movie, but somehow it works. He builds a weapon that is literally just taken from an album cover um, called yeah. the, uh, the Beast, and it's a axe with a spike on the base. Yeah. It's rat. It's right as fuck. It's shiny. It's good. It, um, Super shiny. It, it's it's red. Um, so he determines to. He does throw it away the second he sees a chainsaw. <laughs> That's the other ridiculous thing about it. Is like you think it's gonna play into the plot more, but in, instead it's just like his secondary weapon. He's like, yeah, it, it, it does. Uh, as I've seen this now a lot, actually, it's probably a movie I've seen a lot uh, that came out just three years ago. But I. Um, I love the idea. I mean, he's a he's a lumberjack, right? Like, yeah. For some reason, he doesn't take his chainsaws home with him, or maybe they burned up in the house. I don't know. He the guy just wants a chainsaw, and he built the next best thing. And the second he sees a chainsaw, he's like, "Well, 
it feels like you don't need this flipped. axe anymore. It feels like it should be flipped. Like he has a chainsaw at first because that's like his his life at present. That's what he's access to. But as the movie gets more insane and fantasy, he eventually like discovers the beast. He does get a bigger chainsaw. He does. He does. Um, there's not that many movies with chainsaw fights, but we have covered three of them. Do you know what the other two are? Uh, Motel Hell. I'm forgetting one. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Oh, that's right. Um, I completely forgot we covered we covered that movie on the show, didn't we? We did multiple Killbillies months, two or three. Oh of them. man, that's like the first Killbillies one. That was a fun. That was a fun theme, and then we kind of ran out of movies to do under the theme. Um, so, um, Red uh, first has to take down a group. It's a motorcycle gang called the Black Skulls. They were summoned to help. Um, they sort of have it to take Mandy. They were summoned to take Jeremiah, Mandy and detain. Yeah. Uh, to detain Nicolas Cage, detain Red. Um, and then uh, they sort of disappear and he's like, "That's they're my first target. I got to kill the, yeah. these enforcers because the children in the New Dawn, the cult, they're not that that dangerous like in and of themselves. Like they, they use the, the black skulls as like a muscle. Um, <clears throat> so he wants to take down the, the, the black skulls. He hunts them with the, the bow and arrow gets captured by them because he fails to kill them all. One of them is basically torturing him in the basement of a house that they have broken into. And this is where we find out more about the Black Skulls. They're just a roving band that only acts at night. They took, they were given bad LSD by this guy named The Chemist, uh, yep. played by Richard Brake. Um, and that uh, sort of intentionally, and that now they've been tr- on a bad trip and just love pain. Love pain. They're basically like uh, Cenobites. They are modeled basically on like Cenobites. They have spikes and they... they They're they... not from hell, but they like they like mutilation. They like torture. I actually like... I, in case we don't get back to it, they're... Yeah, they're basically like in this like shitty house. Like a probably a house that like... The kind of house that your parents dragged you to that they didn't have upkeep on with some random family friend like in the 80s, I feel like. And one thing I like is like how mundane their lives are. Like they're dressed in all this like fucking weird leather and like the... They have fucking knife dicks and they watch like porn on a cathode TV and like... And just snort and mountains of drugs. On like this shitty yellow kitchen and stuff. Like, and there's a very scary shot where they... Because the Black Skulls are kind of the center core horror moment of this because like yeah. after this it's just awesome action sequences. They murdered the couple that lived here. Yeah. It's a, it's a very scary terrible. sequence. It is, but there's also... There's a mundanity to like where they live. Right? Like just a shitty... Um, run down, like you know, two 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 floor house. Yeah. So Nick Cage kills uh the black skulls here, um, including one outside in a series of escalating bloody fights where his brutality just gets deeper and deeper. He takes the black gray uh, LSD, which I think makes the rest of the movie way more psychedelic and crazy. And yeah. he uh, moves on to his target, the the, the chemist, because he thinks well, the chemist can chemist. Yeah, the chemist can lead him to the children of the new dawn. The chemist points him in the right direction. He needs to go to this like this up blasted. Heat. It's also great, like in case we don't get back to this specific part, he literally has a silent confrontation where he just stares, covered in blood and drugs, where the chemist is like, "Okay, man." 
you got me, lets his tiger go, and then tells him the location of the children of the new dog. Richard Brake is an actor who is uh, super, super good in genre stuff. It's just that he very often gets assigned to bad movies. Like, he's very captivating in 31, which is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Um, I have, have not seen it. You're good. Based on your recommendation. I, you don't. You don't. Do not see it. Um, it sucks. Uh, but yeah, so Richard Brake is the chemist. Um, he's living in this, this sequence that's very reminiscent of Panos Cosmatos' last se- last movie. I want to get there. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's pause there because I want to get to that after we're done with the recap. Yeah. And then he finds the children of the Black Dawn in this this um, apocalyptic quarry kind of space that houses yeah. their church, which is like, a you know, a big, like, cool looking impressionistic kind of um, triangular church. Kind of, but then I love I love that you also realize it's just a few shitty boards in a cave that the guy is like scratching at and thinking he's like there there's a great like contrast which we'll probably talk about more between like how epic and like you know metal metal cover art all the images are, and then there's also a recognition of like, oh, this is just a guy tripping in a fucking pit. Yeah. <laughs> like there's nothing there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you're absolutely right. So, um, that he goes in there, he has a chainsaw fight. He fit, similar to Drive Angry, actually. He very quickly dispatches most of the cult. There's yep. most of them just go down real fucking quick, and then he uh, minus chainsaw guy. Um, because in Drive Angry they're just rednecks, in this they're just drugged out hippies, right? He lets one of the hippie women go because she's just not threatening him, and he's just like get out of here but he murders the rest of them brutally and then he gets to jeremiah sands and jeremiah sands does i think one of the best villain conclusions ever because he goes from barking commands and trying to overpower him and make him take a knee it's like the five stages of grief right like bargaining and yeah and then he he's begging on his knees like he's like he's like i'll suck your dick like he goes full like dog groveling dog immediately and then he that's goes, based on some real incident too the i'll suck your dick i forget what it was i wish i had written it down more but that is based on like some real like um cult leader when he was found like like going basically going through those motions yeah and he and then he goes back to trying to overpower him psychically as if he actually has cosmic power and nicholas cage red says i'm your god <laughs> so now yeah. Crushes his fucking skull. It's so good. <laughs> this movie's really good, Peter. This movie is <laughs> so fucking good. It's so worth the hype. Like, this is one of those movies that I was like, <clears throat> I saw it a little bit later in the cycle. Um, like, it was in I, I saw it the opening. It, so, I saw it in, in theaters. I saw and it in I gotta tell well, you. Yeah. Oh, you did? Okay. I saw it like the... They did like the week before it did its limited run. It had like a preview screening and I went to that. So theoretically, I mean, I was hyped up because it was like playing at like, I feel like Sundance or something in January of 2018. And I'm, you know, a lot of critics that I really like, like Keith Phipps and Scott Tobias were like posting on Twitter, like, holy shit, like this Whatever hype you're hearing for this movie is not going to be high enough. This is everything you want from a heavy metal inspired uh, bloody revenge Nicolas Cage movie. So I was like chomping at the bit to see it. And I, yeah, I, I saw it with a full theater, which I actually want to talk about um, as we get to our kind of Nicolas Cage motif about like I think some of the theater 
and this is actually a common thing I read for people um, that I know that went and saw it in theaters too, didn't know what to do with parts of it. And there's outright jokes in this movie. Yeah. But also like, I think like there was like almost a feeling of relief when Nicolas Cage is having his vodka meltdown in the, in the, um, bathroom like oh here we go here's when Nicolas Cage does the overacting thing and like there was a lot of like laughs at that moment uh, in the theater that I think like I'm not even like blaming people because it's not a funny moment it's like literally someone having a complete breakdown because their love the only thing in their life that mattered was burned in front of them but I think people were just like Oh, isn't this – I think there's a, there's a contingent that were wait, was waiting for some sort of Nicolas Cage like uh, trying to save the movie through sheer force of will. And I was like, here we go. Here's where he does the stuff that I expect Nicolas Cage to do. And then he does it in the next scene. And then he's essentially a silent killer for – until the very ending of the movie. Like I, I do think there was a little bit of like – Oh, I don't know what to do with this based on all of my current cultural context of a Nick Cage movie. Yeah, yeah. I think that the movie works way better if you are aware of Nicolas Cage as a chameleon, as someone who can fit into multiple roles, because this is a movie that is weaponizing him yeah. for all of it. He is he is a good compelling actor when in the opening scenes which are shot in these like soft blue hues and just like him laying on the couch or laying in bed with mandy is they're they're having conversations about like shit she's been through like she was an abuse yeah. survivor and um the dreams that she has and like them talking about planets like it goes it, it, it crosses yeah. the gamut in the way that like when you're truly in love with someone nothing but vulnerability with them there's a sort of calm, silly serenity where you can go from very dark things to very, like, abstract or silly things that, like, you know, you don't have to defend. Like, you don't have to defend your favorite planet. It's just like a vibe. Um, yeah. And that easy love is is so beautiful. And then we get to Nicolas Cage in um, – still in a good, solid actor mode, but him making jokes and cracking jokes with – yeah, Bill Duke, who's like a – cult movie legend legend um has some immediately great lines but one of them is like he's like t- talking to to, to uh, red about how um you know you're you're basically you're fucked um and then <laughs> and then red in nicholas cage mode in in a very sort of like weird playful but also psychotic way goes don't be yeah. negative yeah <laughs> <laughs> i also just love his like they're like really fucking bad dudes or whatever. Like him, like trying to like express his, um, his like grief and frustration. Uh, it yeah, it is legitimately supposed to be funny. Let's talk a little bit about this the creation of this movie though. So, Peter, I think you and I are pretty aligned on Beyond the Black uh, Rainbow, Cosmodos's uh, first movie that in that we like. In theory, it's extremely our shit, but was like it didn't connect with either of us. I think it's um, it's uh, the movie has third act problems. It just sort of it abandons its as for me. It abandons its aesthetic in its final twenty or maybe even thirty minutes, and um, it doesn't actually culminate with anything. Um, there's just some yeah. like there's there's just some like the, the the lead villain just sort of goes away. I actually don't want to spoil this movie. 
Actually, I'm not thinking about it because I feel like this is a movie I want people to watch. But the, the the ending is not satisfying in a traditional sense or in an aesthetic sense, and that's my yeah. Problem I, with I it. think the aesthetic is strong. Like you, like watching the movie, you'd be like, "Oh, this guy's a great director." He just like something about it didn't didn't click with me. I didn't feel like I felt. I think you're supposed to feel a little cold and disconnected. But it worked too well in that I was also a little, like, disengaged from the movie in a way that I don't think he meant it to. And I agree about the the third act problems where you're supposed to go beyond the black rainbow felt uh, not all that interesting to me. So, I, in a way that I was super hyped for based on where it felt like things were – we're going. So I do think, you know, it's it's it was definitely a, a debut movie that made me go, okay, well, I like what this is trying to do, even if I don't think it's successful. And there you have Mandy who like immediately like a you know, watch and go, Oh, this is everything I wanted from his first like this is amazing. This is this is more than I could have expected uh from a follow-up feature it's everything i wanted while still having like a very unique visual style but like connecting on an emotional and a you know uh visceral level but he initially tried to make this movie after beyond the black rainbow and he met nicholas cage and it was supposed to be a movie about uh about old people versus young people so uh panos has said that he fucking hates hippies so goddamn much. And he essentially made this movie as a reaction to a lot that he saw in his parents' life. Like, he he was surrounded. His his uh, father, George, was a director, made Tombstone, made a few other actually really good movies. Uh, but he had kind of said he was surrounded in L.A. hippie culture and he hated it. And this is kind of his movie that's very reactionary to that. Very obviously, by the way. Um, it's not like a – I don't think you have to even hear an interview from him to say that. But he kind of hates that idea of he, – he thinks it aligns more with – and he hates the way the baby boomers kind of became like conservatives, which is something I've talked about a little bit with my parents as well. And that's kind of emphasized in this film too about like all the Reagan stuff when he's driving home at the beginning. So he had this idea of like the, the, the older generation – uh, uh, kind of attacking and sabotaging the younger generation. And that's what the movie was supposed to be about. He approached Nicolas Cage to play the Jeremiah role, the cult leader. Nicolas Cage read the script and he said, I don't want to do that. I want to play Red. Like, <laughs> he's like, Red's where it's at. I get Red. I want to do Red. And Panos was like, it makes no sense for you to play Red. The whole point is young versus old. Older generation baby booners sabotaging Younger generation, like you playing the younger person makes no goddamn sense. I don't want to do it, which has an element of bravery to it in that like here's someone who's coming off this very low budget beyond the black rainbow. He gets Nicolas Cage who wants to be in his movie, just not the right part. And he tells him no. So he starts retooling the script a little bit because he's not getting it off the ground and he decides to make it. To take the same type of themes and make it about what love is about, where this idea of uh, the differences between love and less about old or new, but just this idea of love as a as a means of control and love as this kind of pure thing where two people are um, 
are sharing each other completely without uh, expectations or without uh, pressure or control, kind of like healthy versus abusive kinds of love. And he, he felt like the the kind of hippie general, he could still kind of tell the story he wanted to tell with this idea of what, what love means um, to, to abusive people and what love means to people that are trying to do good and be better people in the world. And so at that point, it was about a year later, he then re, you know, reapproached Nicolas Cage and he's like, I think I have a different way to approach this movie from a thematic standpoint. And I think you can be rad. And so that's kind of where uh, the movie came from. And then he engaged uh, Elijah Wood, who has who, Elijah Wood. I hate saying things that can be marked in time that like, I, we probably have said this before. Elijah Wood legitimately seems like like the best, one of the best famous people. The fact that he was a child actor and just seems legitimately amazing. So he, you know, he produced this movie through Spectre Vision, but also like when the Richard Stanley stuff came out uh, about a movie that Peter and I both love, created by a fucking another monster in Hollywood, Richard Stanley. Um, he immediately was like, "Yep, we're done with Richard Stanley." Nope. We absolutely they were deep women. in development on the next Lovecraft movie. Dunwich a Horror. movie yeah. in, a, in, a, in a universe where Richard Stanley wasn't a monster, I would be very yeah. excited about. But as soon as the news came out and you read those, that heart heartbreaking news, yeah. which uh, I, I, I don't even want to say fortunately or I don't even want to say unfortunately, but it's just like we didn't have the information at the time. We, we heaped praise on our... Um, Colorado Space episode, and we for years yeah. had a narrative. Where we were like, "Let's bring Richard Stanley back." Yeah, we did the we did the Island of Doctor Moreau like back in twenty like seventeen. Yeah, so for years we were like, we can't wait to see what he does next. And I think at the time we were like, "Oh, he's doing something weird with Spectre Vision." <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, this is a even um, Elijah Wood talked about. Um, it was like the day the news broke. They're like, "He's fired." We respect women. Done. Done. And uh, no one gave which, no uh, one gave many shit for working with him because no one knew until yeah. he knew. Because it yeah, it was something when he was like out of the Hollywood thing. Like he I mean, he basically didn't make movies for twenty years and, and then it was I think someone like was I think it's his girlfriend is pictured in Lost uh Lost Soul, who came out and was like, Hey, yeah, he's a asshole and a misogynist and a abuser. And yeah, Elijah Wood was like, Yeah. We were really excited about Dunwich Horror too. We're not going to ever work with him again. Uh, which, which again, so Elijah Wood seems like it rules. Uh, but yeah, he 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 uh, heard from Panos. He saw Nicolas Cage was involved, and he's like, "I'll I'll my company will greenlight your movie," uh, and that that rules. I but it's you know I really like that idea that like this movie was actually supposed to be about something different, and I don't know what that other version ultimately looks like but i really think the idea of like love as a tool of abuse and control versus love as this like pure respect for another individual as they exist in the world is actually like a really clear theme that runs very strongly through a movie that could easily exist based on just violence and aesthetic absolutely absolutely and um this is a movie that ends up – a lot of movies – a lot of directors pretentiously describe the movies as a love story. But, like, this is a, a movie that's a love story that you are finding out in in reverse um, all of the wonderful things that Mandy did for him and his soul. Yeah. 
and how taking those away from him and him sort of almost like rejecting the things that she already did for him, him saying like, well, she's gone now. So I get to just jump back. I get to spiral back into being the, the person I was before. Um, that is a, it's horrifying. And it's something that actually I, I think about fairly often. Not that I was a horrifying person before I met my wife or whatever. I was like 21. Um, but like, I think a lot about like if a horrible tragedy befell my family and I lost my wife, like, I wonder if I would just spiral. I certainly would not be able to just like go to the office on Monday and be fine. Like, uh, especially if it was a horrifying murder. Um, like, I mean, that is what, that is the main reason. I mean, that people have kids so that they're like, Hey, if anything happens to this old wife of mine, I need to have something to stop me from murdering people with a chainsaw. Yeah. You need to, you need to norm me out. You need nor- yeah. uh, normie anchor. I need, I, need, I need normie anchors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're like, fuck, I do what? have to go to work on Monday. Ah, I gotta pay for these normie anchors. All right, all right. I'll build the beast after work. Fuck, I have to pick up oh, fucking karate practice. Okay, after karate practice, I'll build the beast. Yeah, there's that, there, the scene that really has stayed with me that I think is really like the focal point the rest of the movie shines through is like, there's this scene where Nicholas Red is tied up and they're about to burn Mandy at the stake and Jeremiah's just infuriated at this person, Mandy, that he once not just showed no interest in like joining their celestial ascension or whatever, but like laughed at him. And then there's Red in love with Mandy that somehow like Mandy loves and cares for this guy and he's like you think what you guys have is love? That's not love and he pulls one of his cult members over and he points up, you know, plays Russian roulette with her, puts a bullet in a gun, spins the barrel this is love, you know he's like, kneel, and then puts a gun to her head and you know, pulls the trigger This the idea that he legitimately thinks that like that that what they have is not love. That like the fact that he that someone loves him so much they're willing to die for him is 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 like it is the purest version of love. I think that really drives home the theme very well. That idea that like and I think there's there's degrees of that that exist among like some uh, the amount of toxic people that exist in our world and our lives. But like that idea that like hurting for someone or in being inflicting pain on someone who doesn't protest is actually like a real form of love when it's actually like you know obviously a form of of emotional abuse and the, the fact that like Jeremiah legitimately cannot understand how if 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 they're not you know he wouldn't phrase it like this but like from a from the the watcher's perspective if if they're not emotionally abusive and don't control each other in this way then how can they be so loyal to each other and um you know i i do think that that scene is so haunting and resonant cuz it's such a it's such a sick and evil thing that just feels very like for this weird blown out 80s fantasy movie like it really drives home this idea of like there there is a lot of um there is a lot of abuse that's masqueraded 
in this concept of of love. And I think that is one of the things that Pam said in, in the interview is that uh, which I think is getting a lot of traction. I'm not trying to hit this point too hard, but that idea of the boomer generation kind of embodying that quite a bit with this idea of like a lot of our parental stories, which is like that you see like uh, recounted or realizations on Twitter and TikTok of this idea of like, I love you, thus I must abuse you. I'm doing it for your own good. I'm I'm putting you through this torture or making you – um, need to obey me because I just love you so much and that so much of our generation was kind of inflicted with this idea that love means a con- combination of like obedience and control because we've been gaslit into thinking that like that is the only version of love that makes sense um, and and you know that when confronted with a Nicolas Cage was like, actually like love can be pure and equal and respect people and, you know, respect people's individuality and just care. There's like almost a violent reaction to that because it fundamentally forces that person to recognize, um, to see something inside themselves that they, uh, have, you know, either, either have the choice to accept and feel, what I would imagine would be ungodly sense of remorse over or to violently react and like, you know, kill the thing that is, that is presenting an alternate to their abusive idea of love. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's perfect. I feel like that's like why the the movie actually does work. And a lot of that stuff is kind of like, it's in the dialogue. Yes. Because there are long monologues, but it's also like sort of spiritually intoned because the movie is like, psychedelic and gets into your skin some of that is the expert photography and some of that is the score done by one of my favorite composers yeah. of film scores johan johansson which, which the movie's dedicated to he's he died it's, after this. Fu- it's so fucking sad it's so good and this is one of his best scores um you can listen 100%. to it just like as an album and he what yep. he's he does is he Sort of transitions between a synthwave, but not like drive style synthwave, more of a 80s, almost dorky fantasy synthwave um, and uh, ambient stuff, um, both beautiful and, and, and creepy. And then into uh, gloom metal with like low, very distorted guitars. And like this is a metal movie, like this is a metal movie. The score is pretty much, like, always playing something. (laughs) Um, And, like, there's a few moments of quiet that are terrifying, like the bathroom (laughs) sequence, which, not to jump back too far, but, like, the thought that someone would be laughing at that sequence in a theater makes me cringe a lot because I watched it and I was, like, somewhere between shock, horror, and and uh a uh, 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 sadness yeah i think people just heard like bloody nicholas cage revenge movie and were expecting something less like lyrical and atmospheric and it felt like a momentary release before they realized it wasn't that yeah yeah uh, um it's just such a it's just such a powerful sequence that's very that's quiet uh, it's just him in a room screaming and chugging and then holding his neck, which I believe I, that might be from the barbed wire wound, but it might also be a weird like alcoholic thing where like the vodka is burning He's him. Trying to stop himself from. Yeah, maybe. 
I, 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 it's a very terrifying moment where he's gripping his neck as he's chugging this bottle. At, at his did time. you did you read where he got all the, like the ideas for this like pained silence and melancholy and and random fits of like rage and screaming? Did you, no, did you read no, no, no. like oh, so he I I didn't know this either. Like I guess he and he he was married and he got like divorced right before he made this movie. And uh, it was a their marriage of ten years. I, I'm not even sure if it was someone famous, but they were married from like 2008 to like 2017 or something like that. And he he said in an interview that it was very unexpected when he found out the news that she was leaving him, and he channeled that feeling of loss and the unexpected removal of of a constant into this performance. Um, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I didn't know that, but that, that makes sense. Like the, um, just taking that, that pain and, and shoving it in there because like Nicolas Cage is not a method actor. Um, but Nicolas Cage is someone who like wants to, wants to throw himself at he wants a to scene convey and he wants to yeah, feel He wants to find a magical switch that he can use to, to get to the moment. And um, if that was his magical switch for that moment, like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that he was able to, to share that with us. Right. Like, it, yeah. Um, I mean, you kind of feel it like, and again, he's he, to be very clear. The interview is not about like, and then my, like, it's not, it's not a Neil LeBoot interview, right? Like he's just saying like, yeah, this was a loss in my life and I wasn't expecting it. And that felt that, that, that feeling of a a unexpected loss helped me get into the head of, of red and, and feel like I was really like meeting his emotions on the plane that they, they were getting experienced. Yeah, I, yeah, and, and and while we're talking about that, and then we, I want to talk about the cult. Mandy herself haunts the rest of the movie. Um, her yeah, uh, the her, credit sequence doesn't start till uh, it doesn't say Mandy till an hour and fifteen minutes in after she dies. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, it's 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 a movie where she, her impact is felt the entire time, which I think helps avoid the concept of uh, a fridged woman. Like he is. He he becomes a, a rage monster in her stead, just like any other revenge movie, be it a rape revenge movie or just, you know, a, a Death Wish style, you know, murder revenge movie. Um, that is all. That is all true. Um, it is definitely within the re- revenge category. However, um, the fact that she operates. revenge. Oh, because yeah. he's doing it. Red is doing yeah. the venge. Yeah. I don't call any of the other entries in the revenge genre that because – Almost 0% of the protagonists are named Red. <laughs> it only works here. It only Unless, works. I, I don't remember, I haven't seen all of that 70s show episode, but I guess if, like, you know, uh, Eric Foreman's dad went on a killing rampage over the death of his wife, Kitty, mm-hmm. I think you could accurately call that a Redvenge movie. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that happened in any of the episodes, but... Honey... Your music is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Remember there was a season where, like, his son just left and a random other guy, I think it was Ashton Kutcher's, like, brother, or Seth Meyers' brother, maybe, joined the cast and lived in Eric Foreman's basement? I I do not remember this. I do not remember this, but we definitely have time for it. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So, in episode one, Eric Foreman has gone to college. 
Uh, anyways, oh, is he going sorry. to is he going to college to become a, an actual? Fan? I don't even know if you think I watched. I don't know if he went to college. It was it was like the Scrubs ninth season where like half the cast is gone. They're like, should we keep making a show? Yeah, uh, we're not canceled, but half the cast is gone. I don't know what we should do. Speaking of the Franco family, um, but yeah, oh, yeah Dave, Fra- Dave, Dave Franco Franco's in, in um, Scrubs. But uh, where where the fuck was I, man? Oh, Mandy uh, kind of haunts over the entire movie. She yeah. she is she is a, a she occupies so much space at the beginning. She's not just like introduced for yeah. ten minutes and then murdered and then like oh fun we can get on. Yeah, Red's train. barely in the first like hour of this movie. It's all about her and yeah. her dreams and her hopes, and she dies as a, a a rebel. Like she dies. She has been injected with this strange, uh, massive hornet that gives a hallucinogenic. It seems like maybe a brainwashing drug and she rejects it, maybe partially because of her, you know, if you want to talk about it in a literalist sense, which is probably a waste of time. Both of them, I think, are sober after years or at least California sober. Um, She still smokes weed Um, after years of um, of drug abuse and alcohol abuse. She is maybe built up a tolerance to it. That's the boring answer. The real answer is that she is such a spiritual presence. She is such a ravaging, roaming specter of a human being that like what the moment that he tries to co-opt her brain and literally project himself onto her during a brainwashing sequence, yeah. this just fantastic um, where the images of his face is blended into the image of her face in a way that like is both you can't look at it and you can't look away. Yeah, and it keeps pulsating too. So this, such a, I mean, just an incredible sequence on in in any capacity because it it like the second that you feel like you have a handle on who you're looking at, it like slowly pivots to the other face. And I, I'm, I don't know if this was, I, I have to assume it was somewhat intentional that the two actors, like they don't look alike, but their facial structure and their like nose and their cheeks are similar enough that it really is an amazingly disorienting effect. Andrew Riseboro is so fucking good in this movie, but she's, she's great. She's never better in the sequence than in the sequence where Jeremiah Sands is like playing his record. And by the way, did you know, like on Spotify, it was released on Bandcamp. It became like a top, seller song yeah yeah because like it's an actual there's an actual album and then secondarily there's like a single that's like yeah jeremiah sands was a righteous man or whatever um i i the song is like so goddamn perfect because you're in this trailer it's this evil cult they have a giant hornet that injects a hallucinogen he like does all this stuff about like you know, I make music that connects you with the God and you don't know what you're going to hear. And then you hear a fucking Sherry Lewis song. Because he's, yes, or, because he's a Jesus freak. And so it's yeah. like closer to the Carpenters or whatever than it is. Yeah, it's Peter, Paul and Mary or something. Yeah. Like, it's, it's so like everything we've seen has been metal, metal. And then like you hear a song and like I love that Mandy like is like this is ridiculous. And she's also she's a metal she's a metal girl. She's a metal girl, but on top of that, like there's a great cohesion between audience and like point of view character where you are both expecting something else and when you hear it, you're like, Oh my, what the fuck is this? Yes. And then, you know, that response that Mandy has where she's laughing at how stupid his goddamn music is, you know. 
is the reaction to almost everyone watching it in the audience. And then the fact that that turns into this weird jack off rage is like so perfect. Yeah. So he, he uh, is trying to present his music and present his penis to her. So he holds up an open robe and he's expecting her to just accept the brainwashing. And she starts cackling, laughing at him in a way yeah. that starts off just like a little giggle. And then it roars into a fuck you screaming laugh. Like, ah, where it's no longer a laugh. Now, now it is it is her screaming fuck you at him basically yeah. but without saying a word and he she's laughing at his his dick She's laughing at his music. She's laughing at his dumb fucking weird family of freaks. She's laughing at the whole fucking enterprise and the idea that she would want to join this disgusting abuse family. She has a family and she'd rather fucking die than join this. And I feel like that is what saves this movie from being just turning her into a fridged woman is that she occupies space even after she's dead. Yeah, I mean, quite literally, too, right? There's this amazing animated sequence with her in it after he ingests the uh, tainted LSD. Like, she is a, if not an active presence, she's still like, I mean, she's in the car with him at the end, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. She's, she's in the car with him at the end. I mean, I, I think that just means he's lost his goddamn mind, but like, I mean. But he's smiling. She, he's smiling. She's smiling. Like, yeah, there, it is It is not a movie where I think I think you're right. I think when when it's a bad, rev, you killed my woman and now I got to go be a man and do revenge. I think there is a sense of like, it, it's a movie about the guy throughout, right? Like, um, in most of those movies, it's like it's very clear the man quote unquote or whatever, like the guy that's going to do the revenge is the protagonist throughout. And then this character, this woman that we don't know that well, or, um, or exists primarily as like a, uh, as in, in relation to her boyfriend or husband or whatever else it is dies. And then that person like goes through a journey of self-discovery or redemption through murdering people. You have you have none of that there. Like the movie is about Mandy for the entire duration. She's the main character and has the most screen time. She exists wholly as a person outside of her relationship with Red up until the point that she dies. And Red left with the pieces – doesn't like become his own character and go on his own journey or like red doesn't go through like uh now i'm better he just is lost without the woman that he loves and and with like her spirit a very much a part of his journey goes on his revenge so it is very antithetical to almost every other version of this story because it 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 for the entirety of the movie even when she's not in it physically or alive anymore is it is about Mandy, not Red. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And um, I want to talk a little bit more about the cult because I think we nailed like Jeremiah uh, oh, Sands. Got to talk about the cult. Yeah, um, great cult. He has a line. He says, "If you are not with me, you will not ascend." So that's sort of that's sort of getting back to what you were talking about, where this is an abusive relationship structure. This is Mansonian. He calls the people that are that don't conform to his system and conform to you know other systems pigs, which is specifically a Manson thing. He wrote piggies. The other thing that's very specific on the walls and blood of uh, or his followers yeah. wrote piggies in the walls and blood of the Sharon Tate uh, um, and LaBianca residences like 
No. The other thing that's very Mansonian, though, is like – and very different from – the other, actually, like all of the cult movies I think we've covered, it's a cult of like seven people, right? Like it's <laughs> – He also starts by sacrificing one of them to the Black Skulls. Yeah. Um, he's not and interested in a great in sequence camp. where he's like pulled away. Feels like fu- some fucking Fritz Lang or you know F W Renault German expressionism where he he's silently like, oh no, was I sacrificed? I thought it was part of this. I'm getting silently pulled away backwards. I love that scene. It's anyway. so great. Well, that's a uh, that's the, the while we're talking about it, the black skulls are terrifying. They make these disgusting little weaselly noises when they're doing anything um they're captured in strobe as they do the home invasion to capture them and it's a home invasion unlike any other because it's not about fighting it's about them being yeah, they sleep overt- in a glass bedroom they're overtaken by a nightmare and they're yeah. still oh, yeah that whole house they they built that house in belgium it's yeah house and, rules and it, the uh two facades of the house are just entirely with various size windows that just fit together in a sort of weird tessel, yeah. like not even a tessellation, but like a pattern of of interlocking windows. It's so cool. Um, and these Cenobite uh, black skulls, um, they drive ATVs, they're metal fetishes as well as, as leather, um, and they're cannibals for blood. They love fucking blood, and that's how you pay them. Um, and, and one of the characters, uh, Red's old war buddy, he says, he's telling their backstory, and he says they were in a world of pain. And the freakiest part, they fucking love it. Like, he is talking about uh, these are like pain fetishists that adore pain. They worship pain. They worship inflicting it and receiving it. And like even Red, it feels like Red is giving them a gift almost by by giving them back that pain. Um, and like it calls the question, like children in the new dawn are like these pathetic little insects. Like, yeah, they they are a, this tiny little family of freaks with one sexual abuser at the top who calls his family brothers and sisters. He yeah, says their whole cult travels by a van. <laughs> yes, but they somehow have um, a, a they somehow have a mystical lever on the. The fucking van, that fucking ugly 70s van. Uh, this movie takes place in 1983 and it opens uh, when they were introduced to the children of John. It's open with that Reagan quote, the great spiritual yeah. awakening speech. Yeah, the, yeah. Um, I, I think it was, I mean, I, I know that Panos doesn't know me personally, but I like to think it's to commemorate the year of my birth. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that, like, including Reagan's speeches in your horror movie is, like, a great way to signal that we'd probably be friends. <laughs> A hundred percent. Yeah, I think anyone going, Jesus Christ, and listening to a Reagan speech goes, okay, well, like, we could hang out and not get into a fight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a whole um, uh, uh, um, SCP uh, Secure Contain Protect episode about um, a Reagan speech going off the rails that's essentially riffing on this great spiritual awakening speech, um, which we covered on the show. Um, So, Yeah. yeah. I love I love uh, horror. Yeah, I do. I do too. I I also think like we don't have time to dwell on this. Like, it it is a weird realization about how much my like how much Reagan really is like the worst president that has ever been, or at least in my my lifetime, or probably in the last seventy years, and how much like all of school education is like. Yeah, he's a he was a really popular, loved president. 
Anyways, that's enough about him. Yeah, it's pretty fucked up. Um, but the the Black Skulls have some sort of strange, like, they're like a secondary cult affixed to the Children of the New Dawn because the Children of the New Dawn have two magical objects. And one of them is the Horn of Abraxas, which allows is an ocarina, a stone ocarina that allows them to call down the 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 black skulls and all this feels like it's like silly stupid lore there's also oh there's also the tainted blade of the pale knight straight from the abyssal plain i don't know if you remember that or abyssal layer i don't know if you remember um they have the tainted yeah. blade of the pale knight neither of these that was taught back to back with my reagan education <laughs> reagan popular president tainted blade of the abysmal plain watch out yeah just watch out okay um because if you don't know your horn of Abraxas, you're going to call down a guy. You're not going to have any blood to offer them. And what are you going to do? Um, Peter, I, I want to be very clear. I don't want to turn this into a Trump thing. But I do have a newfound respect for this concept of like, yeah, none of this stuff is magic. But if you have enough people that just have a shared reality, it really doesn't fucking matter. I do think that the, the ocarina has some sort of magical qualities though because it green strobes and if you're you get green strobes just like the tainted blade of the pale knight you get green strobes i mean where's that coming from do you just have a green strobe light don't be ridiculous aaron i mean i i i don't get your head out of your ass here look here's what i guess my take is like i think one of the things i really like about this movie is that everything that seems mystical is just lighting and sound yes and then if you think about everything that you're seeing on screen which it's not trying to pretend it's not it's like just really sad and pathetic and so i i think like i don't care if anything is actually magical like it doesn't like ruin my take of the movie or like take me out of like this movie is not realistic it's not supposed to be but i love the idea at least thematically that everything is super like everyone involved in this fucking like tainted lsd cult is just kind of pathetic losers they're little insects yeah and but they've all agreed that they are like important in some way and are manipulating other like i don't want to say that the call of the black skull or whatever or the group the black skulls are like victims but i mean they were served tainted drugs that fucked up their entire head so i mean there is and now they're being used by this cult to, for, for murder shit i like i again i'm not i'm not ready to defend the black skulls as victims in this movie i but i do think like the idea that it's just this little weird community of a bunch of sad fucking uh, losers. And I, I think that's important to enjoy the revenge in this movie. Like, I get so much joy from watching all these fucking like, oh, yeah, guess what I don't feel bad for? The guy with the fucking knife rape penis, when he dies, I don't feel bad about it. Like, there's not a part of, well, that's a human being. No, good. I hope you cut that guy up. Like, and I, I think the movie really succeeds as showing like this legitimate scum of the earth. And I know that like, that sounds bad that I'm saying it, but like, if you've seen the movie, like these people are from a, from a, from whatever perspective, like really irredeemable. And I think that helps the revenge component of this. 
Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, there's, there's, uh, but they're irredeemable in a way that the film makes very fascinating. A hundred percent, because it's yeah. tapping into stuff that I don't think. I think cults in movies. And another concept we haven't really talked about much um, this month. I, we set out, we set out our rules, which were we have to get an inside look at, at the cult, um, and and that the movie has to in some way um, be a horror movie. Um, the problem is there's a lot of movies that match that definition and are terrible, um, because they rely on cheap tropes and cheap stereotypes. This movie mm-hmm. is like blending the ridiculousness of the, the hippy dippy California Jesus freak cults, uh, that rose up, um, in the late, in the uh, late seventies in particular. I mean, they were obviously Charles Manson um his crimes were in the late 60s but like in the late 70s it was when like these these people really started to to turn into sour a sour strange movement and we started getting more sex cults and people living out in the desert and um yeah this is is a is a movie that takes time to explain the cult to get a little bit into their lore but never loses sight of the fact that these people shouldn't be fetishized because they're ultimately these pathetic little insects and they need to be stomped on and i love the ending of the month with not just uh, a cult getting stomped um but a cult being stomped by Nicolas Cage, because who is more qualified? Yeah. Um, but yeah. It, this I didn't know if that was like an open-ended question. I mean, is a, who's more qualified? Cheddar Goblin could do it faster, but. I mean, he's just bringing too much joy to kids, Peter. <laughs> too much cheddar. <laughs> too much cheddar? Way too much mac and cheese to those fucking kids. I got, a, I got an ad. On Facebook, that I is probably a hundred percent related to me watching this on a streaming platform, because uh, everything's connected. Peter, that said, that Cheddar Goblin sadly will be discontinuing the the. Cause you can buy Cheddar Goblin, or at least you could, as of when we're recording this. But it seems like they're shutting their doors, Peter. So this may be your last chance to get actual Cheddar Goblin. Um, yeah, I, I, I was so close to buying, um, Cheddar Goblin merch, and then I looked at that thing, and I was like, I don't know if I want to look at Cheddar Goblin all the time. Yeah, like, it's, it's, uh, it is that thing where you're like, oh, I got Cheddar Goblin, that would be great to have. How cool is that? They made Cheddar Goblin? Like, you could have, and then you're like, do I want a box of mac and cheese in my house that no one's allowed to eat? (laughs) (laughs) It would be pretty funny, though, if, like, this all goes to shit and, like, you're just sitting in your basement waiting for the radiation to get to you or whatever. And you're like, guess the only thing left is to finally eat the cheddar goblin. But also, it's funny when they make actual products that are supposed to be, like, disgusting parodies of the, the real products. Yeah. Because you're like... I mean, like, I get it that the message is consumerism is bad. Do I also want to get into consumerism of <laughs> fake products that are about consumerism being bad? I know. That is like the the Repo Man thing, right? Where, like, someone made that grocery store and it's like, okay, but it's still like a grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I, but I mean, I do think the Cheddar Goblin stuff is a good, like... This movie does have a very specific and funny sense of humor. The scene that makes me laugh every single time um, is the when they're waiting for the Black Skulls after they blow the conch. Um, is uh, is the board board cult member who just keeps 
rolling the window up and down. Oh, it shows <laughs> you these guys are fucking these guys are burnt out. Like these are these yeah. are these are burnouts and this guy is basically has the the, the mental capacity of a 14-year-old, right? Oh yeah, I mean, I, who doesn't remember being bored in a car and having an electric window and just pressing it up and down and being entertained by that. And the fact that it goes on so long and the noise is so loud, it's so it's so good. It also shows you the the actual disdain that they have for most that most of the family has for each other cuz like the Yeah. This guy is just a convenient moron until he gets sacrificed for some reason. Um yeah. Yeah. I, I also think what's really funny is there's a the attack on the black skulls um, when he Nicholas Cage break, uh, Red breaks out of the basement. He goes upstairs. Um, there's a bunch of funny sequences in a row, and one of which is um, the guy cuts him during his torture, and he says, "He says, I love that shirt. I love that shirt." And then he goes upstairs, and then he goes upstairs, and that guy that he thought he murdered by throwing down the hole has somehow gotten out of the hole and <laughs> yeah, is attacking it looks like him a, again. Like a literal bottomless pit that he's crawled out of. Oh yeah, there's like you, you could like count the seconds between the thump, right? Um, and yeah. the, but these guys, they love pain. I guess they could take it. He gets up and Nicolas Cage is like, "You tore my shirt!" Like he's really he's yelling about the fucking shirt. A- yeah, a- but you know why, right? Yeah, because it's, it's it's the shirt from her, right? Yeah, it's the first when they first met when it flashes back. That's yeah, the shirt he's wearing. Yeah, and he's t- it's, so it's a line that's both funny and heartfelt. And then there's a you don't see that till later though. There's so a, that's why it's so goddamn. And, and there's yeah. a perfect Nicolas Cage moment when he breaks that that stupid black skull's neck, and then he makes a. Mortal Kombat-esque finishing phase where he's smiling (laughs) psychotically in a completely still... He breaks his neck and then he poses in freeze frame as he breaks the neck. And, like, if that doesn't make you, like, laugh and pump your fist at the same time, like, I don't know if our aesthetics match, man. Like, that's (laughs) that's, that's exactly what I want in in the movie like this. Yeah, all of it is just so... God damn good like i don't i don't want it to be a chris farley show but like there's uh i think this was my number two or number three movie of 2018 um was it your number one uh it was it was up there it might have been my number one holy shit it might have i feel like it was number one or number two i mean mine was like two or three and i you know our whole point in doing this nicholas cage versus cults was specifically to talk about this movie i also recognize like it's not that there's not a lot to enjoy about this movie because all two hours are just fucking amazing. But there's not like a ton to talk about because, I mean, when Nicolas Cage goes on his murderous rampage in the last 45 minutes of this movie, he says like two sentences. Like it's all this silent, like him moving through this world that's become more psychedelic, more grungy, more. Um, dark and inhospitable i mean and like it does feel like very beautiful and they're looking at the stars at night and stuff like that and the world feels majestic but also hospitable full of life and green and trees and like the thing i love about the pacific northwest i was you know born in oregon and stuff like that it does feel like impossibly green right partially because it rains all the goddamn time but you know it does feel like like you're literally like surrounded by life 
And I love the way that that turns takes this dark turn into like you're not seeing like an open house um, surrounded by the landscape and nature, but instead like the the other house that you encounter, as I mentioned, feels like this like stereotypical 80s uh, two-story family home that just is completely almost windowless and dark and is just covered in like the most shitty gross aesthetic stuff that was ever produced the yellow fridge the yellow linoleum uh countertops and ugly ass you know uh tv from that era that also like was supposed to double as furniture and like holes and cracks and wallpaper and all that stuff and you just like and then even when he like gets out of nature it's all darkness and rocks and and you know the chainsaw fight take chainsaw fight takes place in like where all those beautiful lush trees are all torn up and in a fucking rock quarry and like all the lumber is placed there. And then he goes into deeper into the rock quarry that is like grayness and like an unadorned, barely put together church facade with a temple room. That's just a fucking rock pit in the, in the ground. Like I, like I, it's all so goddamn good, but like what I just said about that, I feel like is about the limit of like, yeah, go visually experiencing that because it's really visceral and amazingly, uh, amazingly good at fitting with the rest of the themes that you're seeing. But like, how much can you say about like, it looks fucking great. Looks amazing. Oh yeah, yeah. The, the 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 use of color in this movie is just phenomenal because he adds a different texture to kind of I wouldn't say every okay. sequence, but like um, for uh, sort of narrative sonic movements. So like um, when he is out hunting, when he's out being um, assaulted and, and Mandy's being burned, there's a sort of, yeah, like you said, like this sort of green and fiery red um, mix that carries into the sequence where he's hunting the black skulls. And as the movie goes on, it gets redder and oranger and you feel like you're on um, a surface of another planet eventually, like you yeah. were saying, like that the rock quarry has like an alien quality. Um, so I, yeah, I, the, the tech, the texture and the feel of this movie is just something you kind of have to experience and that Johan Johansson score helps you experience it by sort of mesmerizing you into this, like the, the depths of Red's madness. Um, mm. and, and eventually like, it's funny cause Red is like smiling for a lot of the second half of the movie. And it's, it's like yeah. he's found solace in channeling this like spirit of vengeance, um, like his misery, he, he, he confides his misery and vengeance and he, so he's found purpose again. His spiral yeah. is no longer, uh, um, uh, unguided self-destruction. His spiral is, is now guided directly towards the children of the new dawn. Yeah. And their thing, like, I, I love when Jeremiah's in that fucking little pit, just literally just scratching at the walls that like. This is my space. And he says he, – he opens his arms as a way to convince Nick Cage that – or Red that he – that like – that I am the Messiah. And he says, look at what he's provided. And it's an empty pit with just a rock facade. It's like he hasn't – like anyone can have a pit. 
Like, there's nothing even in your pit. I, I, just yeah. Rocks. I love that line. Like, yeah, look at what he has provided, dumbass. That was what Reagan, nothing. Pro- that's what Reagan promised. He says, I yeah. want a, a pit in everyone's uh, occultic basement. Yeah. And that's where, that, that is also what I will provide via your tax plan. <laughs> pit of nothing. Pit of yeah. nothing. Um, yeah. And the fact that they all believe that they're living in Jeremiah's dream and that if he dies, the world dies is also somewhat telling because like he's the last one to go. Um, and he, if any of them could see him groveling like that, you wonder how they would react. Like, is the occultic power so strong that they'd be able to recrack? Or if they saw him groveling like that, would they be like, would they have self-doubt? Like, it's really hard to tell. Well, the grandma cult member grovels first. and It's like, look, I will be the best sex you've ever had. <laughs> yeah, they. it's because they're just looking for a Do new Do you think ab- maybe, maybe, maybe like. Like he's yeah, looking, like, Jer- Jeremiah is looking for a super abuser. He's looking for like, I want a sex abuser to, you know, if you're not, if you're not going to bow to me, one of us needs to bow. Somebody needs to be abused in this. So I have to be now se- second fiddle to you. Is that all right? And then Nicholas yeah, Cage it's, is like, it's like the stop, drop and roll of the call, right? <laughs> like if someone is threatening to abuse you or hurt you. You immediately offered to have sex with them. Yeah, it's it's alpha males, but just for rapists. I guess we're coming back around to uh, in the company of men, huh? Yeah, perfect circle. Uh, yeah, Peter, this movie is great. I'm so glad we got a chance to cover it on the show. Like, uh, you know, it's it's a movie that had a year of hype that lived up to all of it, and is a movie now I've seen four or five times. Like, which is rare for a movie that came out three years ago, even a favorite. And every time that the opening credits start. And I start like getting into it with that great music by King Crimson and everything else. I'm just like, I cannot wait. Like, this is a movie that I just have. Uh, the whole movie is filled with, oh, I can't wait for this sequence. Oh, I can't wait for this. Like, you're enjoying everything you're seeing, but it's just all highs. Um, it is, um, it is, it is the movie version of like the best. 80s rock song where it's like we don't need tone or texture necessarily we just need all amazing imagery and sounds and you just love all of it and even though i think this movie does have a lot of texture and nuance and stuff like that like every moment of it feels exciting and uh that is held up among multiple viewings and i'm, I'm glad it's a movie that at least r- reminded people like nick cage can be a powerful force without having him yell every line and he can be in a kind of like chainsaw bloody revenge movie without it being a like a a joke and also kind of reminding people that like there's a place for psychedelic revenge bloody gory movies that isn't just let's make it as cheesy as possible because we know it's stupid this is a a movie that takes its uh, its premise, which has been done poorly in like 90% of horror straight-to-video movies uh, and, and takes it very seriously and injects it with a level of artistry that is rare among any 
movie. Yeah, and, and, and I think that, that for my final thought here, I think the deal is that this movie is similar to Picnic at Hanging Rock. Um, actually, a yeah. few different Peter Weir movies, but Picnic at Hanging Rock, uh, The Last Wave, um, and uh, Panos Cosmatos' last movie, um, Beyond the Black Rainbow. The reason that you're watching it, and sometimes it's hard to describe how you feel about it, um, and why it's sometimes like you were saying, like, you know, it, it's it's not necessarily about uh, specificity is because it's not speaking necessarily to your consciousness or your intellect. It's speaking to your subconscious. It's speaking to something primal that's deeper inside of you. It's trying to jangle jangle your your uh, your inner uh, primordial soup of what makes you you it's 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 doing what something that only I think film and music can do and it's taking them and, and partnering them in this like dark dark pact um, and that's it, it's making you understand uh, the nature of this character's soul without just spelling it out for you and and, and like well, I'm really happy we got to do this Nick Cage concept. Thanks for coming along the journey with me, Aaron. Um, because uh, that is kind of that is kind of the Nick Cage thing. Like certain things he does are ineffable. He breaks the rules of what is what is a good movie and a bad movie, a good performance and a bad performance. Because he, he he's challenging the paradigm of what that often means. Sometimes. He gives bad performances because he's not engaged and he's bored. And sometimes he gives performances that seem bad, but him throwing that much energy at the movie is actually him trying to do a piece of magic. And I think Panos Cosmatos combined his magic with Nicolas Cage's magic and they formed something. And Mandy, this is a movie we're going to be talking about a long time because ultimately you can't solve Mandy. Mandy is not uh, this convenient little mystery that you can put all the pieces away and you can see why they were in that place. It's not, it's not a clock. You can put all the pieces back together. You can take it apart and put all the pieces back together and you understand how the clock works. Um, this is not a Hitchcock movie or I guess more derisively a, a usual suspects. Um, yeah. This is, which those movies have their place. This is a movie that we're going to keep chewing on for a very long time because uh, you don't actually know how deep it's echoing within your soul until you're a few months later and you're thinking about that shot of Nicolas Cage in the car covered in blood, smiling at Mandy. And you're like, is this a Western? <laughs> and you're, you're thinking of – he's smiling at her ghost and Jupiter and Saturn are hanging out in the cosmos. And you're like, yeah, like co like consciously you're like, yeah, it's like a dorky fantasy uh, a cover, dorky metal cover, a fantasy paperback cover, a dorky album cover. Um, but – it's ringing true to you. It's it's the truth is going much deeper than just like oh yeah they talked about planets earlier and now there's planets and that's what makes that's what makes great cinema right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Peter, this was once again a fantastic Spooktober. It almost feels I always feel like this around Spooktober, which is kind of dumb because I'm also excited for what we're doing next in the next month. Like we get to decide the months. We can we can make the months as exciting or as not exciting to us as we want, Peter. But you know, Spooktober is a tough thing to leave behind as people who text each other in February and being like, Oh, maybe I should watch a bunch of horror movies now. Do you think you could have like Spooktober in February? <laughs> in the same way you have Christmas in July? Like sometimes around my birthday in March, I treat myself to a mini Spooktober where I'm like, Oh, weekend I'm watching horror movies. That's just what I I'm doing just it's, just it's never the same it doesn't have the power and i um i i like that six years yeah. of this we've been able to come up with some really fun spooktober 
Speciepi. So before we talk about what's coming next month, if if you're receiving this message prior to Spooktober 2021, which I hope you are, I hope you have a wonderful, a safe, holy day. And I hope that you end up much like Nick Cage in the car at the end with a big old smile on your face and everything else the same as well. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Um, next month, Peter, we're taking, a, as we always do, a, a harsh pivot away from anything that can be remotely called horror unless it is the horror of having expectations of uh, your interest being received well by the public. Uh, and we're doing a Be Our Guest month where we're going through the movies of one Christopher Gas, specifically his mockumentaries. Uh, it's a month we already have all the way recorded. It's a great goddamn month. Uh, I'm, I'm excited for everyone to hear those episodes. But what are we doing? We're starting with a movie he didn't direct, but obviously is the the uh, starting point for that idea of Christopher Guest plus mockumentaries. That's This is Spinal Tap. Then we're doing kind of a double feature. It's mostly waiting for Guffman, but we use that as a chance to talk about his quasi-sequel for the Corky character in Mascots. Uh, spoiler alert, we love waiting for Guffman. We're not a big fan of mascots. Uh, we're going to talk about all that. Uh, we're joined by Liam Haber for Best in Show, all, all of our favorite Christopher Guest movie. And then we wrap it up with the less funny but very sweet Mighty Wind. Uh, I'd say I'm excited about that month, Peter, but I already lived it. I lived the excitement, and it's great. I was excited about it, which sounds like I'm resigned in that, you know, it's it's been ruined. But I was excited about it, and I enjoyed doing it. Yeah, and now we, the only thing we have to look forward to is actually a dread, which is editing. So, uh, ca- candidly, I'm, dr- I'm dreading the month. Not because the episodes aren't good, or we didn't pick good movies to cover, but all the fun part of the show is over. <laughs> And now we just have to do the work. <laughs> now we have to do the, the, the fun work of going, is that joke actually funny? <laughs> oh, yeah. Was that too much noise? Mm-hmm. All right. I'll, I'll go back and silence it. I know I have to go back two minutes, but I guess it is pretty distracting. <laughs> yeah. It's all for you, the listeners. Um, P.S. If anyone wants to do our editing for free, we will hire you and we will give you. Your uh, hire is really a stretch. We will let you take our art and turn it into magic. Uh, Peter, a merry spooktober to you. I hope you and your wife are blessed with the reason for the season. And, uh, you know, get all get all drenched in blood. I guess. Thank you. And on that, I want to say what Aaron already said. Good night. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> Yeah.
you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs) 